Thank you for joining us on our journey here to preserve the history of mixed martial arts. When I wanted to take on this project, I needed help. I brought in one of my favorite matchmakers, Miguel Iterate, and the MMA detective, Mike Davis. So to do this, we've been able to preserve history. Welcome and enjoy. Welcome back, everybody. Lights Out Podcast. I'm here with the usual suspects and one of my favorite people in the sport. Uh, was one of the guys I started with, the old school guy. Um, Alex, Alex, how the hell have you been, man? Doing good, man. My life uh, life is really good right now. So, uh, you know, I, I've been amazing uh, over the last little bit, uh, you know, staying on the grind, staying working hard on other other aspects of life. And, uh, you know, now finally getting to relax a little bit. So uh, we've been talking about this for a while, uh, I think about, <laughs> about two years or a year and a half or something. It's been a while. Uh, so glad to finally do it with you guys. Man, I mean, Alex was one of the guys who, I mean, had such a meteoric rise um, early. Yeah. And then, um, you know, it just uh, had so much going on and fought so many tough people. And it's funny when I, when I tell the stories of how the things used to be. And that's what this podcast is all about, telling all these old school stories. You should hear some of these, like, the, the way the sport grew up and turned into what it is. People will never believe. Like, I remember telling people a lot about, yeah, I remember when me and Alex, we'd have one set of boxing gloves, so I'd get the left <laughs> and he'd get the right, and then we'd switch. And people would be like, well, how'd that make you better? And I was like, you know, it didn't. <laughs> it made me worse, but, I mean, it just made us tougher, which was not good. That was not good, but we didn't shit like that all the time to train. And we just – we were like the blind leading the deaf. We had no idea what was going on. We were just trying to figure it out. Uh, I, lo I love your analogy, the blind leading the deaf. And uh, I, I do – I remember, like uh, – those times I tell people all the time, like, you did what? And like, you made, you, you didn't have mouthpiece or you made them out of duct tape? Like, you, like, <laughs> why would you do that? Like, I, I don't know, man. Like, because we didn't have anything else to do. Like, uh, he used to break into high school wrestling rooms because we didn't have a gym and, uh, yeah. to, uh, run all over the place. And yeah, that was a, that was a good time. It was just, it was just, uh, um, you know, and it's such a short period of time when you look back on it, you know what I'm saying? It was like really like a year and a half, two years of that uh, before yeah. things started to change. So, yeah, man. I remember, so I started about a year before Alex, 98, like 99 or so, I believe, you know, he, he comes in from him and another guy, Jeremy Bolt, came in from the University of Indianapolis. And um, they, I guess they were just the two tough guys who, who were wrestlers who wanted to come train with us. And uh, that's kind of how it started, man. And then, you know, really quickly, some couple of the guys came, and these were the only two guys who stayed and kept training with us. And you could just tell real quick, I mean, Alex had enough of that, just the ruffian in him that he was going to be a good fighter if he, if he kept going. Because, you know, to be guys, I guess you, you have to be kind of smart, but not really smart, you know, like stupid <laughs> enough to say, this is a good idea. When you don't, there wasn't any money. Or, it was just stupid, but it was fun. So he kept around and, uh, Became such a just a uh, my number one training partner the whole time. So uh, Mike, go ahead and start off and let let's uh, get going because he has some amazing shit going. On. All right, so <laughs> Alex, your style is you've got no problem being on the bottom, being the nail. You and Chris both share that. Is that from training or? Yeah, I, I I think that was laziness out of my part. <laughs> so uh, I think that in the term of dog fighting, they call it a scratch dog, right? Like they call it where they just uh, they'll they'll uh, like uh, 
they'll roll over and let you beat on them for a while and then they'll get up and keep attacking and then just until you wear out. Um, that was definitely not a planned thing. I think Chris grew out of it. Uh, Chris somehow managed to change that, which is really amazing. Like if you look at people, like people don't ever change their style like that dramatically. And Chris went from a guy that could like stay yeah. on the bottom and hang around. And then he just mentally made a shift and then started just swinging on people like nobody's business. And uh, so that, I always thought that was really impressive. Uh, mine really came out of, I used to, uh, I I messed my neck up in wrestling um, and I had in car accidents and stuff. And I had some ruptured disc to my neck. And so um, my, that's actually how I ended up going into fighting uh, was I had to redshirt a year uh, and it's like odd that you would get on medical redshirt and then go into MMA fighting. Uh, but that's what I did because I, like Chris said, I wasn't really, I was smart, but not that smart. You know, like you think like, that's a good idea. That's going to keep me in shape. Um, and so what I learned is like, so when I would shoot takedowns and shoot and I would jam my head, that's when I would have it. And it would like shoot up like a, it was like getting hit with a cattle prod. And I had it happen enough times in college wrestling that like I was super terrified of that happening during a fight. Um, and so I kind of really got off where I didn't really shoot a whole lot. Um, and then it got into like a little bit of a laziness style, um, like finding out I could get away with that a little bit. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, strategy, not necessarily a good strategy, but a strategy to let somebody punch you until they're tired um, and go with the old Homer Simpson defense. Uh, and uh, um, not, not always the best strategy, but it, it was something that we did. All right. well, you know what else? Another thing I noticed, I feel like that that was something that more implementing your strategy a lot when you started training a lot with Jeremy Horn, and he was just so effective at that. I'm sure it's enticing to be like, this guy's on his back a lot. And he's getting a lot of slick submissions, and your submission game went up then. But man, it was like he has a good ability not to take much damage there. That's hard system to develop. You know what I mean? Well, he, Jeremy, he never got hit. Like, even in practice, like, he never really got really super clean on him. And I trained with him for two years in a row. But I don't know. I don't know what, like, uh, you know, I, I like I said, I could get away with it for a while. And then uh, I stopped being able to get away with it. Uh, but I never really – I didn't ever have that ability to shift gears like you did where you were just like, I'm not going to be on my back anymore. I'm just going to swing for the fences. And I feel like I kind of did the opposite. I swung for the fences early in the game and then, like, found myself on my back. Like, um, so it's, uh, yeah, yeah. But Jeremy never got – he never got hit. Like, it didn't matter where you were at. Like, it didn't matter who you were. Like, you just are always a glancing blow or, you know, something. Amazing. We had him on here, and he talked about, like, never being cut open. And I'm like, I'm just counting all the stitches I've had. Everybody like, he never gets cut. He ain't that fighter. I don't yeah. know. How do you do that, man? How do you do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. He, ne he never did. Like, I mean, like I said, we, we trained all the time, and he, he was never – you just, like – you could get him every once in a while in practice, but – not not regularly, you know, and you, and you watched everybody in there. We had Lawler in there. We had Hughes in there. We had Sylvia in there. We had all these dudes that were coming in. Franklin, and you just never saw – you never saw him get rocked in practice, which is kind of amazing, hey. right? Yeah. 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 Hey, let's, let's talk about your first fight, April 3rd, 1999. LaPorte, Indiana, Rage in the Cage, promoter Chad Wagner – you wind up with Furman Long. Do you even remember that? 
I, the only thing I know about Furman Long was that he actually, he wanted to fight, but he didn't want to use his real name, which is probably not a good indicator, right? Like, you're like, I'm going to get in this thing, but I'm so unconfident. I don't want anybody to know it's me. Um, you know, it, like, so it's probably not a good thing. The, that wasn't his real name. Uh, that was... That was a, uh, that's a Godsky made-up name. Listen to it. Furman Godsky. Long. <laughs> if, if you look on that, if you look on that card... Uh, there's a guy named Alex Short, and Alex Short is actually Jeremy Bolt. And the reason why he was called Alex Short is because Gotzi couldn't remember his name, but he knew he was my friend, and he knew he was short, so he called him Alex Short on the card. That that's. <laughs> but I don't even I like I'm not even gonna lie. I don't even really remember that fight hardly at all. You know, like. I barely, I barely remember it. I feel like he had, like, uh, you know, like he had like a flat top kind of cut. And I remember uh, kneeing the heck out of him. That was kind of my mo the whole time is just getting people down and kneeing the crap out of him. Catching. It was in a square cage. So if you're in a square cage, it's I don't like you can get caught in a corner and there's no there's no out of that of that situation. You're just chumped at that point. So uh, I I do feel like I got him on the corner of the cage and he just get up. But uh, you would know. Have you seen, have you seen? Is there video out there of this? I don't know. No, but uh, <laughs> I, I've been to about a dozen of those shows, and I knew exactly <laughs> what it is you walked into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was. <laughs> I had buddies drive six hours to come see that show, man. Uh, it was just crazy because it was just uh, it was just like Alex is doing what he's you know, and it it very much was those early fights were like uh, it looked like some kind of a roadhouse, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, so, uh, do you remember the promoter Chad Wagner? No, I don't specifically remember him. No, why? It was this. All right, so you go from there. I mean, it's your first fight, and did you know at this point that you'd go to about a half dozen countries because of the fight game? After this, no. So, Chris, who was who was the who was the uh, Gracie guy that you fought early, like when you first? Do you remember? Uh, that? Nobody called it MMA. Yeah. Um, and so no, yeah. we hated it. 
We hated it. We hated like the transition. MMA, nah, NHB, yeah. man. You know, I mean, it, but that was NHB. You could head, some, You never knew what the rules were. You could headbutt sometimes, but knee into the head was always legal on the ground. It was one of my favorite moves, too. I knee him in the head three times, and they'd roll over, give me the choke. Cool. You know, I mean, that was an honorable way out, and that was what we did a lot. You know, we, we'd get him down and pummel him for 30 seconds. Like, I'm done. They'd roll over, and it was, it was over. You know what I mean? So it was truly – more of an NHB style, you know, MMA. It's been good. I understand why, but I like the old school rules, man, personally. The the knee to the head was my, my like, that was all my game. And, you know, like, I, I love that. I love side mount, knee to the head. You know, there's no – you didn't hang out in side mount. <laughs> there, no. was, there was no you hanging out in side mount. <laughs> you, you had to move. Game. And if you, you had to give up your back, you had to give up your back. Right, right. You had to go. You had to move. And there wasn't there wasn't playing around in that point. Um, yeah, so that was a, that was a, 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 a I like, yeah, that Bo Hershberger fight. I think uh, Chris wore a pair of uh, tube socks on his hands for gloves. <laughs> it wasn't regulation, I promise that. Yeah. It was like, it was like knee pads, they taped onto my hands. I was like, all right, oh, that poor guy, beat the break. his face was all bad up at the end. I was like, eh. They look like if you I remember when you were in uh, like sixth grade soccer, you had your shin guards, you know, those just soft. Know, like padding that's that's what he had he had like sixth grade soft uh you know uh, shin pads on that was it like he had like this tiny and they came over and asked about it they're like those, those regulations I'm like in months they are <laughs> yeah. hard to see the alex let me ask you how you doing brother um we talking about that fight for chad and the firm and long fight was that your first fight or are there are there a bunch of fights that are not on your record because chris got like he said he's probably got like ten fights that are not on your record. I, I figure you probably like that. I, I had a couple, but not not like ten like Chris did. Uh, Chris was doing it a little bit before me, and I and so for me, I think there was like two or three. I think that there were points at times when I, I might maybe padded my record uh, to make it look better, uh, it, but uh, that that surely folded away. I thought about it before. I was like, really? That's only only fights I had when. I remember when Sherdog came on, and I think when I when Sherdog's records were coming up, I think I was like two or three short, but not a whole lot. There were a couple ones that like they were in the God. Remember that? Did you fight in that one? It was like in the sticks in Mount Vernon, Indiana, and it was like it literally was like driving out the Roadhouse. You went out to this bar that was like in the middle of nowhere, just I mean a dirt road, and then this huge bar, and then you fought in there. Um, yeah, that one. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to fight that night, but I remember I showed up there and I was cornering people and somebody like Scott Hensley didn't have an opponent. So I was like, all right. And I fought him, you know, <laughs> I, just, I had to borrow a cup. I didn't have any. So I remember that's how it was. You didn't have to share or sign up. I was like, oh, okay, I'll go fight. And I just put on stuff and went and fought him. <laughs> um, but that, it was at that place, that broom stage or whatever place in North Vernon. I think, that, I think that's the name of it was, man. How do you have such yeah. a good memory? I, like you didn't, your memory held up in mind. No, just for a few things. I can't remember anybody's name or you know what I had for dinner, but I can last night. But I know I know certain things. <laughs> so in the regional circuit here in the Midwest, there's a couple standout names. Jeremy Morrison is definitely one of them. Jeremy's kind of like fought everyone and anyone. That's your second fight. Yeah. So and, and honestly, like uh, I took him down and I controlled most of the fight, but he did split me open um, and. Uh, 
the 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 tape disappeared and i think his dad was the only one that ever had a copy of the tape and so he got stolen out of some car or something i'm not quite sure but uh but i think that one was probably probably you could have it could have been a loss uh but i think godsey was one of the one of the judges and referees at the time i'm not quite sure and he was like you know <laughs> Control. I controlled the fight. I controlled the entire fight. But he landed more shots, and he, he got me on some um, some um, some knees uh, on the takedowns. Uh, one of the one of the uh, the things about like I was not that was the that was a, a defining fight for me in the fact that I was like I had been partying, like not just like my partying, my level of partying, and like uh, Miguel would will will attest to the level of uh, like debauchery I used to engage in. But uh, I was doing that the night before in Louisville, Kentucky, got in the car and drove six hours and showed up like, you know, 20 minutes before the fight and did it. And then I was like, yeah, I I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can, I can, I can show, I can go smoke a pack and a half of cigarettes the night before and uh, (laughs) engage and stay up until, you know, seven 30 in the morning doing whatever bad stuff I was doing. And then, and then go fight. I probably shouldn't. Probably should change the regimen up a little bit. Yeah, you can't stay pro long going that route. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. So, so it, it, it was ruled a draw. Yes, it sir. was ruled a draw. It, it was ruled a draw. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, like I said, I think uh, part of that was was Gotti's doing. <laughs> You know, Jeremy's got a beat up record, but he's legitimately he's he's actually a pretty talented guy. Like he's he's no joke. Well, I mean, and I, you know, he was a guy that like like you said, you were doing that stuff early, early on. You know what I'm saying? And I don't know what like what level of training he had or who he had to really train with. Um, I, I know that he he landed like I was a college wrestler, and he was uh, he was landing knees to me every time I made a shot. Um, and, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was, like I said, I was not, uh, not in the, the best, uh, condition I should have been, but, you know, I don't think that dude, that dude wasn't going running wind sprints, you know, to train for his fights either. I'm pretty sure Jeremy was just a dude out there training. And then, you know, like, you know, he was, he was probably working eight hours a day and then, you know, would, uh, yeah. bang it out with somebody for a couple times a week and then go to go fight. So, yeah. So Miguel, at this at this point, he gets on the hook and shoot radar. You bring him over to fight Roberto Ramirez, Chicago fight team owner. Yeah, that's what that's when I first met him. And that, by then, we'd been working with Chris. I knew Jason, Godsey pretty well, and I knew Phyllis. And they, she kind of, you know, guided her guys here. And I think that they all like had a respect to them and thanking them, I think they all viewed our show as kind of like a better show than those Roadhouse shows. So, like, they always came to performances. So we had a really good working relationship. Steibling, Steibling, I always mispronounce your name, right? <laughs> but uh, uh, he was, like, the first 185-pounder I, I had that I think I thought I could work with. Like, I, I – like, I couldn't put like he broke a dude's leg in one of our fights, and I was like, "All right, I can't, I can't put him in with just everybody that comes along anymore," you know. Um, but he was a guy; he'd walk in and he'd fight, and if the opponent would change, like it didn't matter. Like you could just tell the attitude, the mindset was there, and he had that a little bit of 
of that Louisville, Kentucky would, you know, <laughs> would it, but it worked for him when he was a young man too, because it made him brash. It made him, that confidence is, is something that shows and stuff. And it, 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 for him, it translated to the bigger stage too. So I think you can see, you can see some of that stuff there. So I, I thought, I thought he was a guy that, you know, came out of, came out of nowhere to, to be really good. Right. He was immediately on our, like the next guy, like him that showed up on our radar was Rich Franklin. So, oh wow! Yeah. By the way, on a different note, but I remember I remember being a hook and shoot, getting ready for a fight, and I'm prepping in the, like that. I'm getting ready to walk, walk out, and Alex like, "Here, take a drink of this," and I did. He had vodka in it. I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> <laughs> like, just messing with me because he was he was hanging out partying. <laughs> I didn't like it at the time, but it was funny after the fight because I submitted the guy pretty quick. But I was like, "Damn, dude, don't be doing that shit." <laughs> so Alex, at this point, you're not really taking it that serious, and other than just showing up and getting into fist fights. No, I know. I mean, I, you know, I was a college wrestler, and so like I, I took shit pretty seriously, pretty quickly, and like so we were training. I don't know, but we only trained a couple because at this time we're still breaking into high school wrestling rooms, so there wasn't really <laughs> much else to do. Now I was, I think I was, re I can't remember if so. What so when I got into fighting. I was I redshirted as a, a, for a year in college for medical redshirt for my neck injury. And so, like, I did this. I started training. And I think I fought, for, you know, until maybe September. And then I, I stepped back in and rest and finished out a wrestling season and then stepped back in. Um, so I was in wrestling mindset. So, like, I was still, like, you know, I was still working out five, six days a week. I might work out twice a day. Um, so I was still doing stuff. Now, how much of that was, you know, fight training? It, like it wasn't jujitsu or learning technique. We didn't have anybody in there teaching technique. So you just went in there and rolled and somebody would, you know, I saw this move or, you know, this was really pre able the ability to search anything on the Internet very much. So I saw this in a book like people would bring in Pancrase book and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was still training, uh, but it, like uh not to that next level, right? Oh no, he he, he was like Godsey. Godsey was like a, he's like a godfather over there to me because, like, just but his association meant he was going to be more prepared than just about any other average Indiana guy that showed up. You know, like guys that we drove were in a train. We came in and trained a couple of days a week hard and just went hard. I mean, that's all the way we trained. We just going going with each other and. Go as hard as you can for a couple of hours, and that'd be it, you know. But a lot of guys weren't doing that. We had we had good athletic guys who were tougher and mentally tougher than people. That's why we were good. And well, I think you... the whole the whole aura of Japan and and oh yeah, yeah. And stuff really helps too because you know those guys fighting at the Roadhouse don't even have that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like you guys have Agreed. a greater stuff, and I, it shows in in your demeanor and the way you carried yourselves too. Not that you were like I mean, superstars, but for Indiana you were already superstars. I mean Matt, when when we walked into when we walked into different place, I mean we were we were ahead above everybody else. You know, I mean people were look I mean we, we were turning hands people like damn who were those guys? They knew we were there to win. You know what I mean? I mean it wasn't like not that we won every fight, but people knew we were to be we were a force to be reckoned with as soon as we walked in. By the way we carried ourselves and just having like Jason and those credentials of being going over to Japan and fighting, other people didn't have that stuff around me. And the whole yeah. integrated fighting shirt, everybody in the same shirt. You know? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. exactly. We're all with the same tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> so, Alex, did, did you also carry that as well? I mean, you're kind of like a newer guy 
to the scene with uh, integrated fighting, when you walked into these places, did you also have that, that sense of that you were ahead of everybody else as well? Well, I mean, so like it was just kind of forming right before I got there. Like I don't, there wasn't really like integrated came like that started, you know, really when I like that started right after I got there. Like there wasn't like we didn't have a name. It was just a bunch of guys getting together. And then we started to kind of develop. And there was, you know, some other good guys that were like getting in there and working it and going after the fights. And we were like, that's how we felt, you know, like Jeremy was a tough kid. You know, he was winning at lighter weights and then Lytle and me and then Gotti. And um, so when we went into places, like you said, we, we came in with that attitude. And then it would be like, you know, so like anything regional, we didn't really, but then it would be like, okay, we, we ran into the, the Militich guys, you know, coming. <laughs> and then it would be like the, the the what was what was uh, Coleman's team uh, from uh, House. and we, we almost like we would almost get into like full on fist fights with the, you know there would be arguments and like bucking up that kind of stuff with the whole the whole groups you know um, so but yeah we there was other little littler shows and we kind of knew hey we're better than these dudes uh, we were yeah we definitely had that attitude to it. That's interesting. Were you uh, in Chris's corner when he fought Aaron Riley at Hook and Shoot? Like I would assume I was, um, but I can't. I can't really like. Uh, was Riley? Riley would have been. Would that have been earlier? Uh, when was that? It's Great. well. I mean, I, to, to kind of help bring to memory, uh, Chris's corner and his family fought Aaron Riley's family. <laughs> We're just trying to figure out like who may have. It was it was in hook and shoot. Uh, it was in hook and shoot in Evansville. Like I I beat him out and it was like dead side there between besides my five fans. <laughs> but when was that? Was that prior? To, that was prior to me then, wasn't it? No, no, no. That was after you for sure. You might have already moved away by then. Actually, I don't know. Really? Because I yeah. feel like because Riley had already moved away at that point by the time I moved. You know what I'm saying? Riley was already in and Riley had already fought. Uh, was that before my Miguel? Was that before? Did Chris fight him before or after Eves? Well, I'm I'm checking it right now. I think <laughs> Riley was with Matt Hume at this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah he was. He was with Matt Hume for sure. Okay, all right. So then that would have been after me. That would have probably been I, like he would have already lost to Eves then. Uh, yeah. Like because that was the remember. I remember being there for Riley fighting Eves and getting beat by Eves, and that was you know. And I think he was already maybe with Hume at that time, but that was like a, a big show. I don't like. I can't remember. I don't. It was. You'd have to. What year was it? Uh, like two thousand and one, a bit. Yeah. No, no, yeah. I, I got it in front of me. Eve Edwards. That's they. He fought Aaron twice. He fought both of them. He beat Aaron twice. And then after that, Aaron made a comback and got Lytle in two thousand three, March of two thousand three. Yeah, I would have been, I would have been in, I would have been in Utah at that time. And I think, yeah. and I think I fought. If you you could check the date on that, but March two thousand three, I'm betting that I would have been uh, getting. But where did you come out for so Shoji? Did you come out for my Shoji fight? Yep. Yep. Okay. I think that would have been around the same time uh, as my Shoji fight. So I probably didn't come out for that. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, and I was in a little bit of a trouble with the law. I don't think I was allowed to leave Utah at that time. We'll I get to get, that. I, get, I had to get special permission to go to Japan <laughs> from the court of Utah. <laughs> Just to fill you in, Alex, Alex, you're totally on top of stuff. You're, you're actually sharper and you give yourself credit for it. Um, <laughs> March of 2003. 
Uh, Chris fought Aaron, and you fought Akira Shoji in, in Pride. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I know Mike's going to take us there, but yeah, you know what? With Shoji, and I mean, we're going to not skip too far ahead, but this one with Shoji, you lost a split decision. I thought yeah. it was kind of kind of questionable, but you actually hurt one of your training partners, and you brought Amir uh, Ranvardi into your camp. Amir, Amir had been, I'd known Amir through boss and we had trained together down there. And, um, I can't remember exactly who was, uh, who, if, oh no, I didn't hurt my, my, if you're talking about my, my training partner, Griffin, I didn't hurt him. He was hurt. He's like had one of the most catastrophic knee injuries you've ever seen in MMA. And if somebody can pull that up, it is the worst. Like, I mean, his toe, his big toe is right by his mouth, and it was just a non non injury thing, non uh, non contact. But um, anyway, he got hurt. I didn't really have a whole lot of people at the time. Uh, like I said, I was uh, uh, obligated to stay in uh, Utah for uh, for various reasons, and um, uh, so I brought Amir in uh, and trained with him so that I had somebody to go with uh, on a, uh, on a higher level because. That was pre-Horn coming out to Utah. I didn't have anybody like full-time out there. Um, and so Amir came out and worked with me for a little bit. And Akira uh, showed you trained with Matt Hume. That guy's a wizard, man. So I had actually trained with Akira uh, like because I, I used to make like rounds out there. Like I would just jump in the car. I'd be bored and restless like 23-year-old, 24 years old, so 25 I would just jump in a car and drive 12 hours to Seattle, LA, wherever, and just and set up and hack and work with guys. And I went out there and trained with them a couple times. Um, and so, yeah, um, Hume was Hume was good. That was when Barnett was out there. Maurice Smith was out there. Uh, he was training with them. Ivan Salaberry, uh, Sal, uh, how do you pronounce his name, Miguel? Salaberry. Um, he was out there. Uh, uh, Riley was out there, so I probably trained with Riley. Uh, like, there was a lot of times where I'd be like training with somebody, like, and then they get their call, and they're like, I'm fighting Chris. I'm like, ah, I gotta get away from me, man. <laughs> and like three or four times, it would be people that I would have to like stop training with, or you know, like, yeah. You should have heard him, man. You should have heard him. Like, I got, <laughs> and you don't go get for paid, the left man. leg. The left knee's not good. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me, let me test my memory. You mentioned while you were in Utah, the four horn. Your training partner's name is Griffin. Is that Griffin right now? Yeah, 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 yeah. Good guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. He trained with Horn. Horn loves him as a training partner as well. Later on in the future, he's a solid guy. Doesn't get a lot of credit. He he and he just never really was able uh, to like hit it when in the game, you know. But like in yeah. the in the room, he was just super tough. Like. Hughes and all those dudes like he was super strong he was like a, a black belt in jiu-jitsu he was just a tough dude and nobody you know it didn't matter if it was Lawler or Sylvia or anybody like he could get anybody in the room and uh you know everybody was like man nobody wanted to go with Griff when he was fresh like when you you picked out your rounds people were trying to avoid him uh, and I'm talking about top level dudes you know and uh um and he was you know he he, he is a tough dude yeah it's amazing. How many guys can you think of like that who were just, I mean, tough as could be in the room, but just couldn't translate that over to a fight? You know, I mean, I know a lot of people they, that happens in wrestling, it happens in in fighting, just in that you know, the toughest guy in the room, but just can't tra translate over to prime time. You know what I mean? Griff's always seemed to be like injuries, and it was like it just he just got injured, and it was just it was just one of those things like you know the universe 
deemed it deemed it this, you know. So he like it's like every time he went for a big fight, he just got hurt. He got right before it or right during it, or it was a it was a trip. Yeah, uh, it wasn't just he just didn't perform well. It was just he had injuries. You think? Um, yeah, I mean, I I was only there for like one of his one of his fights, but I know that he pretty much got injured most of his fights, and then then that one, it was like. It was catastrophic. So yeah, it was, and then that was it. Like he he was permanently had uh, permanent injuries. He had dropped foot for the rest of his career, so he could never fight again after that. So he went on a bit of a terror. You get Roberto Ramirez by ankle lock, Augusto Perroquet. Uh, you get a decision. <laughs> Louis Louis You knock him out. You know he's from Panama City, Florida, and Kai Hansen. You heel hook. So like. You're making your rounds. You're doing a leg locks, which is those kind are all of... one. Those are all one night, Mike. I believe those are at the no, sixteen no, man tournament. No, no, no. no. Oh, those were all on the. Those were all on the the, the hook hook and shoots. I believe weren't they? Oh, yeah. Those were all. all, the all this, Never mind. August Porquet was a uh, was a bodybuilder guy that came with Fulton, right? If okay, I remember. Right. And at the yeah. end of that, it was Kai Hansen whose leg you broke, and Kai Hansen. You know, I always I always think back. I wonder, like, I think he's like there's a, a famous like guitarist, like heavy metal guitarist now whose name is Kai Hansen. I wonder if it's the same dude because he never fought again after he broke his leg. <laughs> Was he a Strasser guy, Miguel? Uh, he came from up there, um, Minnesota, right? He fought on Strasser's show, but I don't know if he was officially with Strasser. But yeah, okay. he came from those circles. So, and Hansen was a step up in opponent. For Alex, because like Porquet was was one of Fulton's guys, that, you know, one of the guys he packed in the van to you know fill up the fights. Although he looked the part, uh, Roberto Ramirez, you know, was early was a young young fighter early in his career, you know, and he's a guy that is probably a, a better instructor too than than you know a, a performer in the ring. You know, I think that's fair to say he's had two decades of success as an instructor, but Kai Hansen was a step up and it didn't last long and. You know, my hat's off to Kai Hansen because he, he he took a broken leg, like like <laughs> one of the bones in the lower part of the leg. It wasn't like a, it was serious. I thought it was. I thought it was. I thought it tore his knee out. But like the, but that was probably the most brutal thing. It was like one of the things that like you know like when they talk like talk about like old school hook and shoot. It was like one of those things that you don't do to people. You know what I'm saying? And that's exactly like I, I went from a standing heel hook. And just slammed it to the mat, like turned turned it and took it to the mat. And like, in in like, you know, I just didn't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, as a, but like, I don't know that I would have. I don't know at that time. I just didn't have anything else but just to attack. Um, and uh, like, I think I did it off of a move that like the Japanese dudes we had. Like, uh, um, who fought who fought Tito? Um, like the, the Japanese dudes had come in town, the Pancrease guys had come in and trained with us, and they showed me something. Right Yuki here. Kondo. Yuki Kondo. And then who was the, uh, uh, the older Takahashi. Dude? Takahashi. And then Daisuke were there. And uh, they taught me some some move, and I and I went out in there and did it. And But I, it, like, yeah, in retrospect, that was not a not a. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you just like, oh, I was 23, but you're like, yeah, you don't do that to people. But I did it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, by the way, we used, to, we used to call Alex the Crippler in the in the, in the training room because if you went with him, sometimes you were gonna get hurt. You'd know, be like, "Man, he like, like elbows and he, bam, just, oh shit, I'm cut," you know, and stuff like that. 
Oh, did you kind of come to Indianapolis training with you guys? Yeah. Yeah. We had Ian Freeman there at the time. Um, oh, he was yeah. fighting the UFC. And then uh, Yuki Kondo and some of the Japanese. They were fighting in, in UFC, and so Phil Lee would send them over to train with us and Jason, and we'd all we had a we had a lot of good people train out of Indianapolis sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So Yuki That's Kondo far. is somewhere in Japan right now, and he's saying, "You know, I know a good little restaurant in Indianapolis." Is that? What he, he's been <laughs> probably not. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. So you get to call your five hundred one one. You get to call to the UFC. How, how does that take place? Uh, actually, I was supposed to be like in from what was Monty Cox? Like I, that dude. I, like I really didn't like the dude for a long time for this. Um, but like uh, Chris got the fight, and then there was supposed. To, I can't remember who dropped out of the fight with M Matt Hughes. Um, but Mark. not Matt Hughes, but Mark Hughes. Um, somebody dropped out. It was a kickboxer out of the Midwest, um, and he dropped out. And so then they. Like they needed somebody, and we were there. Like, or they not we were there, but like I don't know. It was probably only like two or three weeks beforehand. They called up and said, "Hey, you want this fight?" And then, uh, like later, uh, I heard like you know, Monty Cox was like, "The only reason you were you were in that fight is because you were going to be a fish fight." No, I think I think Mark was actually the fill-in for the other guy, and I was supposed to like the statement was that I was going to be a fish fight, that I was going to get bloody or something from this kickboxer guy. Um, but that guy dropped out. I ended up finding Mark. It's kind of like a pretty slow fight, uh, but it was pretty amazing because, uh, you know, been only been in the sport for a year and a half at the time. Uh, <laughs> part, of, part of that time I had stepped out for wrestling. I came back in and, you know, it was, uh, you know, you're, you're walking out to the UFC and it, it was, you know, like Chris had fought the fight before me. And so, like, I was back in the locker room by myself. They brought Chuck Lytle uh, to come in. And Gatsy grabs Chuck Lytle and says, hey, keep him company. Keep his, keep him loose while, you know. And it's like just sitting there chilling with Chuck before the fight and walking out <laughs> to the fight, man. Just, I remember being, like, all smiling. Just be like, how did this happen? Like, how did how did, how did this happen, you know? Like, uh, you know, it was the first one on uh, that was sanctioned by a governing body, by a boxing commission. Um, it was in the Trump Taj Mahal, and it was at, uh, uh, out in Atlantic City. So, um, you know, the fight was what it was. You know, it wasn't a lot to it. He took me down. We kind of, you know, patted on each other a little bit. I tried a couple submissions that didn't didn't fly, and that was about all there was to that fight. But it, it was a huge confidence booster to, you know, be in there and just be going. Where did you and Monty butt heads? What was, what was the reasoning behind it? Oh, just because he told me I was going to be a fish fight, that I was just there to get bloody, you know, and like he, Monty was always, my, that was Monty, Monty was always just going with people in the background, like, and I knew him after, you know, when I was training with, with uh, Horn, he'd still be over there just throwing those like side comps, you know, you know, side, you know, backhanded compliments and like, and just some side comment all the time. He was always just, you I don't think he, I, we kind of had, I don't want to say like a rivalry, but I mean, it was like, we both kind of Midwestern groups, you know, and, and like we were probably the only good guys from the not the only, but we were some of the good guys from the Midwest that he wasn't with, you know. He feel he we were part of Phil's team, so I'm sure he didn't like us. And it was kind of a mutual, like you know, it was like a rivalry type thing. But then they they were they had like Milton, they were good, you know. So it was uh, they they were definitely a tough team, and we were kind of like piss off, and they were probably the same dust, I imagine. Alex, yeah. were you signed by Phyllis? Were you a Phyllis Lee official? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was signed with Phyllis. Like, you know, like I was, 
that was another one of those things. Just like, oh, I got a manager. Like, you don't know anything. You're like, <laughs> I just yeah, signed with it, you know, whatever. I got a no, manager. But that's that's what that's what Monty. That's what rubbed Monty the wrong way is because, and I, you know, yeah. Monty's a shark. He's just, he's a businessman. Even back then, he sees talent that's not well managed. He will steal it. He will take it from you. And you yeah. guys yeah. had that loyalty that he couldn't break. It bothered him. <laughs> that, that loyalty is something, you know, Phyllis is a big part of it. Jason had it. You know what I mean? It's like, I understand because I knew her. Why you guys just didn't leave her or be like, you know, bitch, you stole my fucking plane tickets, you know? But none of that ever happened, you know? But because of that loyalty, that that quality. So that's what rubbed Monty the wrong way. <laughs> that, that 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 hung around for a long time, like even when it, like because I would be over in Pride or anything, and he'd always be having some side shit to say and uh, you know, like, but it's you're like I said, you're in a group of fighters, and if you can throw somebody off their game, you know, he, that was just how he did it. And then, like, once I got to know him a little bit, uh, and it was less, you know, confrontational because I was with Horn, um, then I understood it a little bit more. And, and but when I was a young kid, and I, I, that shit pissed me off. Like Hughes, man, me and Hughes hated each other for a while. Uh, <laughs> and it was that same stuff, you know. Wow. Wow. That's excellent. So you fight Mark Hughes, you lose a decision, um, and you immediately rebound over to Pancrase. So you kind of fall forward where you fought uh, Sine Kikuda. Yeah. Tough. That dude's yeah, tough. <laughs> so it, that was, I, I didn't know, and got to know, like, you know, and again, it was one of those things that, like, I was, you know, going to be like a, a, a UFC veteran that he was going to be. Um, you know, because some of those love Phyllis, uh, you know, she did, she did a lot. But some of the reason why me and Chris uh, like got got good fast and got our names fast is because she would throw us into anything. And now, <laughs> respect, those weren't like very well managed fights, you know, like and like uh, it, it worked until until it didn't. Right. Um, but that was that was one of those things that like, I, again, like I was supposedly supposed to be a fish fight or a bloody fight over in the UFC. And uh, that didn't work out, and then I get thrown over to the to the um, to Pancrase and go against their best guy, um, and he he was definitely a better grappler than me. And if the, the fight had continued, uh, I don't really at that point in my career, I don't think I could have. I don't know, maybe I could have pulled something out, but not I, like he was just a better grappler than I was, um, way more polished, and uh, he headbutted me coming into the coming in to try a takedown and uh, split his own head open and I was dazed as could be I didn't even know which corner I was in at that point <laughs> the headbutt was so hard like um he, he he came in full full force he went in to do some kind of trip I can't remember exactly what he did we uh and uh when he came in his whole head came in bam and uh whether it was intentional or what but he split his own head open um like we scrambled around for a little bit. Uh, they stopped the fight. I I couldn't figure out which corner was mine. Uh, then they restarted the fight. I, I landed some jabs right back into the cut, opened it back up, and then they were like, okay, now it's a no contest. Like, well, shouldn't it have been a no contest a minute ago when he headbutted me? But then when he still had a shot to win, they were okay. But, like, then it was, it was like a no contest. Like, automatic first round, no contest. I'm like, right, whatever. It was a pancreas decision. <laughs> Yeah, and when you say when you say they're the best guy, you know, your Kikuda two months later will go to Abu Dhabi and actually win 
the tournament, you know. And again, Saulo Ribeiro had won it two two years prior. You know, was a two time champion. So he did. He was the first and only Japanese guy who's ever won an Abu Dhabi tournament. Really, and that was months after. So you were right there at his highest moment. Yeah, he he was good. They had that him and they had that like Grabaka team or whatever they were. I can't remember. They had their yeah. own little team within Pancrase. And they were they were all tough as nails, man. Like it was at a um, the uh, Genki Sudo was part of that. It, they, they were just they had their own little subgroup in there. They were they, they they were freaking legit. They were tough to deal with. Heroes there. So you're still in college at this point. What is your wrestling coach saying? Um, so I don't know that they really knew that much about it. They never brought it up. Um, it, you was, you I, mean to tell me the people on your team never said anything? They never ratted you out? The, my buddies knew about it, but dude, you got to understand. Like, I you could go back, and I don't know if the dude's still alive or not. But my coach, like, my wrestling coach never wrestled. My college wrestling coach never wrestled. That's how tripped out like the situation was in my college. So my college it was at University of Indianapolis. Um, the, the the he was. He had been there since basically the college opened up. I don't know. He had been there forever. Um, he had at one point been the, the, the women's tennis coach. Um, like, and then he was the, the our wrestling. He ended up as the wrestling coach and had been there for 20 plus years um, and was more of just kind of like a manager or facilitator. And he would get some guys in there to coach some stuff, some old school, but like it wasn't very very strong of a of a program at that time. It's much better now. But we had like we had some like really serious good wrestling guys come in and he wouldn't even let them be their coach, be our coach, because he was he like because he was, I guess, threatened by it. But so he never I don't remember him ever making mention about my fighting. If the, if it was, it was just like, oh Alex is fighting. I don't think that they I was kind of towards, you know, I was a senior senior. I was not like really I was a 500 wrestler. I win as much as I lost. I was okay. I wasn't, you know, like this wasn't producing, you know, so it wasn't, I was a starter because I was a heavier weight, but they didn't like, they didn't really have much to say to me <laughs> about it. Okay. Um, you, you beat Dennis Reed by armbar in RSF and then you get to call to Brazil. So Phyllis no. swings you over to Brazil no. with the oh, IVC no. tournament. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not Brazil, Michael. That's oh, that's Venezuela. It's Venezuela. USA Venezuela. versus Brazil in Venezuela. In Venezuela. Now, this, this may be the weirdest <laughs> tournament of all time. This may be the absolute weirdest thing of all time. Just, you know, tough guys, some journeymen from the States, and, you know, Alex had a tough road. Mike, you take us through it. But, yeah, Venezuela, it is Vatarelli's IVC that's doing the show. Um, he had lost his sponsorships in Brazil and, you know, managed to pull off a show in Venezuela, uh, you know, towards the end of the IVC's run there. And uh, this is what we get. We have the champion with us, Michael. Yeah. So, Sergio Bonarelli, what's your relationship with the promoter? I mean, nothing. Uh, so, from, you know, I, as far as, like, afterwards, you know, I love God, right? But uh, uh, I didn't have any, any kind of a relationship to him or anything to it. Um, just, uh, so the backstory of it is, uh, I wasn't originally on this, this is like, like a lot of, of my fights, especially working with uh, Phyllis was, I was like a last minute guy, like just throw me in. And like I said, that when you're early and you don't have a name, that's fine. Cause nobody cares. They'll throw you in there and you'll go into it. 
And like before this fight, like after the UFC, after after Kikita and, and Pan Grace, I had like a six month period where like I couldn't get a fight to save my life. Like Miguel would set me up with something. I'd come in the ring. I would be warming up. We're ready to go on the stage next. And the guy would walk out the door. Like it was like nobody that uh, you know there was that dude who was that dude out of uh, Rock something um, out of Massachusetts uh, I can't remember oh he's Raquel huh he's Raquel he's Raquel I wanted to fight him I wanted to fight everybody but nobody would do it because I didn't have enough name to make anything out of it if they won and I was dangerous enough that that if I lost they lost it was just a bad rap on it. so then. Everybody else, nobody else would go. Like I was taking Muay Thai fights. I was taking boxing exhibitions. I was taking like whatever was there because nobody would get in the ring at that time. Like it was, it was crazy. I thought, I think I had like two or three fights with Miguel. Miguel, I remember like the last one was the guy that walked out. He walked out as, I mean, I'm sweating. I'm ready. We're ready to walk out the door. And he, Miguel walks up. He's like, that dude just left. <laughs> it's like, what? You gotta be kidding me. Um, I, think, I think Horn was there refing and he came up to me like, I'm like, Where, where's the guy? He's like, oh, I have the gloves. <laughs> he hadn't even been able to get it. So, yeah, it was one of those, uh, one of those absolute, you know, Indiana shit shows. But uh, the thing about the <laughs> Ivy, so, so let me get this straight. So Sergio did, did a lot of IVCs in Brazil where, you know, he had used a lot of uh, pills as people. You know, they and he had a relationship with Phil. So he probably called Phyllis and said, I got to get somebody in Venezuela. Now, let me tell you, filling a card in Venezuela, this man, you know, deserves hats off because even back then it was still crazy. It was crazy. And, uh, you know, he's doing it from Brazil, filling it there. And he had a little guy named Mauricio that was helping him with it. But this was also a two man show. It was him and Mauricio doing a show in Karat, man, this. I can't even imagine anything more crazy, you know. How'd it go? So was it was Phyllis? So, but Phyllis had filled it. She had filled it with the big, they were all, the whole American card was big heavyweight guys. And I can't remember all the names of them, but they were all like, they all were very similar in the fact that they were built big muscle heads. Uh, and they filled this whole card. All the eight slots for Americans were filled with these spots. And um, this was 9-11 happened, um, and 9-11 happened, and uh, a bunch of people dropped out. One of the guys, there were multiple people from my gym that were going that were not very talented, but just big musclehead dudes. And um, they they dropped out, and so they didn't have anybody else, so they put me into it. So, yeah. yeah, I think Ron Waterman was another one of Phyllis's people that may have been originally scheduled to be on here that didn't make it. And yeah. this is exactly two months after 9-11. Yeah, this was – so it was it was November 11th. Uh, yeah, I think it was – or November 1st. Or, yeah, it was the first week of November. It was two months after. And, uh, yeah, so uh, it was the same weekend that, like, the other plane went down in Brooklyn, these kind of things. So it was, there was a lot of backdrop to the story, yeah. So your first opponent was Luis Claudio uh, Das Torres. He's a Luda Libre guy. So uh, he was tough. I mean, and like I was always a, a notoriously slow fighter, a uh, slow starter at least. Um, and so we just kind of uh, battled it out, rolled around, fought for like, I mean, nine and a half minutes. I hit him on multiple heel hooks, but he just wouldn't quit. And then finally on the last one he did. 
Um, and he, I think he tapped out like maybe, maybe, I don't know, uh, uh, like 940 or 930 or something. Um, and then I had this long fight. All the other Americans got slaughtered the first round, first go through. I mean, all of them were like one, two, three minute fights. All the Brazilians rolled through it. So they're fresh and I'm tired. <laughs> that was going into the round two. And it's your first tournament. So there's a little bit of an acclimation, you know, the adrenaline dump, getting up again in the same night. That's not an easy thing to manage. You know, I was young enough that you don't know the difference, you know what I'm saying? And I was still really fresh coming out of college wrestling. So to go multiple times wasn't like a real odd thing for me, you know what I'm saying? So like if I come from a different background, but, you know, to go – you know, four or five times in a wrestling tournament, six times, seven times in a wrestling tournament, that's kind of normal, you know what I'm saying? So uh, it wasn't that odd for me to go through it, but um, it was still, you know, it, it's it's higher stakes when people are getting their head stomped in, right? Well, your next opponent, Nova, go ahead, I just wanted to ask a little bit. So before we continue in the fights, talk about getting to Venezuela and like, like what was the, like the hotel, like, whether it was cool or whether it was not, because if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Chavez had recently taken power there. So, so what, uh, <laughs> that that part of it was so like uh, we were in this amazing, you know, like five star complex, but I didn't really know anything about the geopolitical situation, and I think it was like in this transitional spot. So I thought Chavez had been in power and then was coming back, and I can't remember exactly how it was. But he was, uh, but there were dudes standing, like, I, there's things that you just were like, I didn't know if it was just being in a third, you know, not a third world country, but a less developed country. But there were just dudes in army fatigues holding, you know, AR-15s everywhere you drove, you know, there were guys with, you know, army dudes with driving around on uh, dirt bikes uh, with, you know, machine guns on their back. Like, and you, that was like, I do remember like, if we were in this huge five-star compound, it was gorgeous. You know, we walked around a little bit during the day, but we were going to try and go walk to a place. And they were like, oh, it's like 10 minutes by walk over here. And we're like, okay, well, we'll just walk. And they're like, no, you can't walk. And we're like, what are you talking about? I'm with, you know, it's like eight to 10, you know, 300 pound guys that are MMA fighters. They're like, no, you can't walk. Like, it's too dangerous. <laughs> That's how dangerous it was, you know? Uh, so, yeah, that was that was part of it, too. Well, the little Libre guys, were they, um, they're always kind of known for being a little bit rough. Was there any issues at weigh-ins, any trash talking, and obviously a language that you probably didn't understand? You know, they, they, they did not do, you know, like, uh, you know, Sergio put on this show, but it's so strange. He put the Brazilians that the Venezuelans hate anyway, and then verse Americans in this thing, and then like in a, in a, the sport wasn't developed in Venezuela, you know, it wasn't, so they didn't have a lot of people there. So one of the things they did is they took this dude, Tony Ross was one of our guys and he ended up, he was brought down to fight. He was a last minute uh, replacement, but it turned out he couldn't fight because of some medical stuff, but they knew he wasn't going to be able to fight, but they, they were like, Hey, you know, we want you to like sell the fight. They're going to video this, you know, just kind of like see if you can, sell the fight a little bit, so, you know, do a little bit of a trash talking, um, you know, whatever. So, I, and I can't remember the guy, the guy was super tough. Uh, he ended up fighting on some major shows. His, who was his, his wife was, uh, was a professional fighter. She was on the UFC multiple times. You know what I'm talking about, Miguel? Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Cyborg is his nickname. Cyborg. So they didn't, but they didn't put him onto it. This was he was going to get some trash talk, and this was the upsell on the on on the deal, right? Like so, Evangelista yeah. Santos. Yeah, Evangelista. yeah. It, well, he wasn't Cyborg, but yeah, that was the other dude that was there with me. Uh, okay. Uh, but so uh, Cyborg, I didn't fight him, but anyway, Cyborg goes up to shake. You know, he's supposed to be facing off against my, you know, uh, um, Tony Ross, and Tony doesn't shake his hand, pulls his hand away at the, at the pre-fight stuff, and and it was a big, you know. But Cyborg got pissed off. He, he was mad, and you could tell like all the Brazilians were like offended by this stuff, but nobody told him that it, <laughs> it was just a, which is a gag. He, he was Tony wasn't even going to fight. Uh, but like they didn't know that part of it. Uh, it. I do remember that part of it. I didn't. I didn't really have a lot of uh, animosity. I ended up uh, doing a radio interview with the guy that I fought in the finals. Um, you know, for me, it was just I was super ecstatic just to be there. This was before I did the Brazilian killer stuff and trash talk. I just was kind of like just super excited to be there. So I kind of got along with most people. Cyborg, you could tell though he he was not there to play. This was his his ticket out, and he was he was hungry. Well, I mean, the Brazilian killer was born in this tournament. Right, right. With that nickname. Um, your next fight was against uh, Nova Unhao, um student, uh, Leandro Liborio. <laughs> so uh, that fight was, like, I think maybe my only knockout of my career. I can't remember, you know, but uh, he um, – he came out, and I think he was kind of one of those guys that might have been a last-minute replacement for the Brazilian side of it. And uh, I'm not quite sure. I think he was. But he came out, and he thought that I was like uh, – and he came out, and I had some Muay Thai shorts on. So these guys all thought I was a Muay Thai fighter. And uh, and he came out, and he was looking to shoot. And he, he and you saw it. You saw it in his eyes. He was coming across to shoot the takedown. And that was his old game plan. And then, like, right before he did it, he recognized through my position that it was not going to be a good outcome. <laughs> like he realized like I was ready for it and he stopped and he stopped and he was dead stop. And it was just like the dumbest thing you could do. He just stopped in absolute metal ground. And I just like, he looked at me and I was like, yep, here it comes, man. And I again, gave him a soccer punt right to the forehead and knocked him out. <laughs> it was like, I don't know. It was like seven seconds or something. It was ridiculously short. Uh, and then, you know, that kind of set me up for the, for the tournament because now I I had this long first fight. It was almost like a warm-up, knock out the next guy. Now I have this big break and all the Brazilians go in to fight each other and they just decimated each other. Every one of the fights was 10, 12 minutes of just grueling fighting. Now they're all gassed and I'm ready to go. Right, right. So the confidence kind of swing back your way. Milton Bahia, Team Fafel, um, you transitioned from a knee bar to a heel hook in a way that was very cutting edge at that time. Like, I don't think many people at that point in mixed martial arts and jujitsu really saw just what a smooth transition, something like that could be. Um, you know, I, at, at that time, I I'm not quite sure, but the, I, we had done a lot of heel hook stuff and the, the, the Brazilians weren't, you know, they just didn't use them as much. It wasn't like, it wasn't okay to use them in their room. So they didn't use them on a regular basis is what I've learned from it from then. But, uh, you know, he like, <laughs> what the, the dumbest thing was is that in a, in a fight where you can knee stomp headbutt, I did a sacrificial knee bar from a standing position that was just, I like, 
<laughs> Josh Barnett, he was watching the fight with me one time. He's like, I can't believe you did that. And I was like, now in retrospect, the way you say that, yeah, I can't believe I did that either. But uh, I did it, and then we rolled back and forth, and it was just a matter of playing the game back and forth. And we were really comfortable of doing that in, in integrated fighting. We we played a lot of heel hooks, a lot of knee bars, um, and so it was a real simple transition for us. Yeah, it's fantastic. So now your next two fights, I mean, you finish him in a minute seven. Yeah. You roll into the finals, and you're fresh. Yeah. You're legit fresh <laughs> against Angelo, uh, was it Araujo? Yeah. And so uh, that was one of the things it's like, and I talked about Brazilian it. top team, I might yeah. add. So you're going through all of them. Yeah. And so, like I said, one of the things that was stated, and it was it was such a strange thing, and I can't remember who the reporter was down there with me, um, but he, he, he wrote for, like, you know, some of the top five magazines at the time. And um, and uh, full con he was writing stuff for Full Contact Writer and other things at the time. Um, and he he had asked the question just just kind of like at the pre fight stuff the night before the fights. He asked the question, how much time will there be in between the fights? Like so when you go from and he specifically stated when you go from from the semifinals, how much time will there be until the final match? And he's and and Sergio says no time. There will be no time. And and it was like the one. I it was it was just so prophetic. <laughs> so when when they came to it, like when you look back on this, the whole deal was was they were going to get these top tough young 185 pounds Brazilian guys to come in here. If you looked at who they brought in who were originally on the fight show, they were going to bring these dudes in and beat these top big Americans. And so he had set this up for that kind of thing. And so then when it came to it, now I have, I've fought a minute and 20 seconds in the last three hours. Angelo gets out of the ring. He's just out of the ring from a, I don't know. You could look at the time between him and Cyborg's fight, but him and Cyborg battled, battled. And if I had gone through that fight, you would never talk to me. You wouldn't be talking you know, I'm like nobody would have ever known my name because I wouldn't have made it through through that to the finals and win. Uh, Angela just had a really tough tournament the whole way through. He fought super tough. Um, and so he had to go and turn around. And, th and then my group, you know, my group was sitting there going, you said no time, no time. They started to try and give him a break. They tried to give him like, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, you know, 30 minutes. And they were, you could tell they were trying to stall. But, like, people got up in the faces and were like, you said no time. You said no time. Get him in the ring. Get him in the ring. And we get in the ring, man. And, you know, uh, Angela still fought tough. I think it was four minutes. And I was still – it wasn't – he took me down. He tried to he, he tried to get on top and pound. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I got – you know, we got out and, uh, you know, I snapped him down and got a got a spun behind and got a, a rear naked on him. Just a lot of out of exhaustion on his part. Yeah. Who's in your corner helping push this? Um, so it was Phyllis, and then it was just the American fighters. Um, so Tony Ross, like he he he's recently just passed, but he was a guy that was out of integrated. There were a couple different guys that were out of integrated that were down there that really weren't that good, but they were just you know tough guys, and they were willing to fill in. And so I had, and then I had uh, that American reporter, you know, like he, he got in it, like every, like the whole American side, like just jumped on and was like, Hey man, you said nothing. You said there was no time breaks here. Go, go, go. And uh, that's what it was. 
Wow. Yeah, just wow. to clean up our, our Raujo, uh for 10 minutes the first round. Uh the, the second round he got he got by John Rankin, one of the Americans in, in uh in a minute. So he he did get a quick one. And then his fight with uh Cyborg went about eight minutes, yeah. at which point you were sitting nice and fresh. So yeah. So you're, you're it, it, can you see who who did Angelo fight the first round though? The first round, I think he might have fought a Brazilian the first round, did he not? Yeah. I, I, they they ran guy, out of Americans. This guy's a Brazilian named Carlos Clayton, who's about 240. Mangueda. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, I matched I matched Clayton against Jeff Munson. So yeah. so so that you get the idea of the type of body he was. He's huge. Yeah, yeah. And that that was – he. so he had a tough fight. Like, he just had to, like, grind it out with the first guy that was a legitimate fighter. And then, like, every – like, you can see every one of his fights was, uh, you know, the, him and the cyborg fight was – you knew. You knew, like, it was just – they were just – when they got matched up, you're like, oh, this is going to – these dudes are going to – they're going to go after it. And they did. Yeah, that's a high level. 2001, that's a high-level fight. And, and here's the thing is, like, he just – he gassed – he worked outworked Cyborg. Cyborg was every bit as good of – he was throwing as heavy as you could heavy and throw, and um, and Angelo just he, – he he gassed him. He worked him out. That's what that's what happened with that. You walk away from that tournament known as the Brazilian killer. I don't know. Was it your team that gave it to you? Was it the locker yeah. room? It me. <laughs> just 100%. Showmanship, like at the end, you know, to walk away from it. Um, one of the things that Sergio said is Sergio said before the fights, you know, in that pre-fight gig, he said, Pride's already called and said they want to know who wins this fight. And so when I'm in the middle of that ring, you know, winning had just beat, you know, I didn't have any money. I was broke. I was like living off of like quarter snacks from a gas station. I could barely pay my rent. Like, and then you're like, you get this $10,000 payday. And you're going to, and, and, you know, he raised my hand. He's like, you want to go to Pride? I'm sending you to Pride. And uh, it was like an unbelievable feeling. Like that was, you know, like that was a, that was a crazy feeling. I didn't know, you know, thought about it in 20 years and that was what that was. But um, so then we go there and, you know, I beat the next Brazilian. And, and so then I, I adopted that moniker uh, just to, you know, sell myself. That, that was the age of the time at the time, right? It was the, Talk some trash and sell yourself. Well, marketing. Well, yeah. you pull into Pride 18. Wait, but, 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 hold on one second. I, I heard a story. <laughs> I was hoping this wouldn't come up. About you uh, leaving. Well, why don't you tell us about how you left Venezuela? Okay. So I'll tell this story. Well, one thing I'll talk about is, uh, so now in this spot, uh, I don't know, like, uh, so uh, how to, so, my, uh, it's 20 years. Nobody's going to jail. Just tell it. <laughs> yeah, going to jail. But the thing is, is that I, I my job now is, is the fact that okay. what I was, I was still tell the story, but what I was, what I'm prefacing this is, is that I'm in AA. I don't, I, I don't like, I'm not here to glorify my use at the time, but my use at the time was what it was. And so, you know, wait, 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 wait. Else. are you sober now? You said, oh yeah, I've been sober for 11 years. Man, uh, good for you, dude. That's excellent. Yeah. Um, and I actually work in substance abuse. So I work uh, in, in a uh, addiction facility and I work in, as a provider uh, for, for medical services, psychiatric services. Oh, okay. And, so, so everybody at home, 
you don't get to this point without a rough road. I mean, that, that's a fact. I mean, okay. I'm sober. Miguel's sober. Okay. I mean, so all of us here, like, I went to an AA meeting last week. Okay. So all of us here, you know what I mean? Right. You got me beat by more than four years, brother. Congratulations. Okay. So, um, so the story is, is I, you know, at this time I wasn't so, and I, this was part of, part of my, uh, part of both my, uh, exuberant and my, my, you know, being able to, to get to this levels cause you're, you think you're invincible. Um, and it's also part of what brought me down in, in the sport and made me change my life. Um, but it, it, so the story is, is we go out and like, we're, we're, you know, we have an extra day in, in there. I have a bunch of money. All the fighters are there. We go to like, uh, we go to a mall of all places and, and see this girl, um, and start, you know, I ended up a long story. I ended up like chatting her up. She ends up coming back to the hotel with us. We're going to like, uh, go out uh, to the club. She's going to take us out to the club. She keeps taking us to these different clubs, that we're going to, and then we're going to these clubs, and we, have, and we have these two like Lincoln Town Card, you know, driving us around, driving us around, all these fighters around, and we're going to these clubs, and we start going to these clubs, and she's like taking us in, and we're going in there, and then like, I, for whatever reason, I wish I could remember the guy's name. I can't remember the reporter's name, uh, but we were the journalist's name, and we were sitting there, and I was like, "Yo, yeah, man, be uh, be be on the lookout for these girls. I don't trust these girls." So then he's like, hey, man, they're running a scam on us. They keep bringing drinks and sending them back. And so they ended up like charging us a bunch of money. And we left. And I didn't really know that the girl we were with was in on it yet. But she takes tries to take us to another club. We're like, no, no, we're not going to this. We don't want to do it. We go to a discotheque. It's kind of not a whole lot of people there when we first get there. But it gets going and we're having a blast. Um, but in the middle of this, uh, you know, like I'm in, indulging in some uh, party favors that you might find in in uh, in South America, uh, you know, and this girl's getting them for me and I'm out there hanging out and partying. And so she wants to, wants keeps wanting me to leave with her and leave my group. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not leaving them. I'm not leaving them. Uh, but we go to leave the bar and then they're like, you have this bar tab and i can't remember what the bar tab was and like i can't remember the conversion but it was a huge amount of money for drinks there like it was absurd to the point where we didn't even have that much money and then they like blocked our exit they had like big bouncer dudes and like and the you know the club's going off there's people all over the place i've been dancing with this other girl she ends up getting like these americans to come over and come talk with us they are marines they help pay for our drinks because they gave us this huge amount of bill and wouldn't let us leave the leave the bar so we know something's not up we leave out of there i quite don't understand i just got glimpses of seeing this girl talk to talk to somebody i knew something wasn't right but uh, you know you're drinking you're partying you're drunk you're high you just don't know right you're, you're going on with the night so we go out that and we go out. She again tries to get me to leave with her by alone. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. We get back to the hotel. Um, you know, we go to pay for the for the limo. They give us some outrageous bill. The fighters take off. I'm like, okay, well, I'll do this. So I go up and get stupid. Go up there and get the whole wad of money, like ten thousand dollars in my hand. I walk down and pay these guys. So as I do that. The girl was like, well, do you want some more? You know, and I'll just say it, it was cocaine. She's like, you want some more cocaine? And I was like, yeah, let's do that. She's like, well, we got to, these guys can get it for us, but we can't do it here. I'm like, well, I'm not going anywhere with you guys. She's like, no, we're just going to drive over to the 
to the parking lot so they can do it away from the cameras in the front door. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. So I get in the car. She's on in the back seat. She's on one side. I'm a, I'm in the, I'm there. The other driver tries to get in on me and box me in. And I was like, nah, nah, nah. So I kick him and I shut the door. And it was an old like Lincoln where the, the recesses, the lock recesses underneath, right? And I just grabbed it. And as soon as I grabbed it, the, the driver tried to lock it. And he pulls off. And I'm holding that lock button up, you know. And so then he pulls off in the parking garage is one exit, right? So we're going to, he passes that. And immediately the next thing is a freeway entrance. There, it was a weird setup for this, but he was going to go right on this thing. Luckily, and I would have been chumped at that point. Luckily, a car comes up and, and he had to yield. So he had to stop. I jump out of the car, you know, whatever. Somehow I still let this girl come back to the hotel room, room with me. Right. So we're in the hotel room, you know, like we're in the hotel room and I'm like, man, Tony, watch this girl. Make sure she don't put anything in my luggage. We're getting ready to leave. We're like, we're high. We're drunk. We're going to go into the airport in a couple hours. I give this girl a hundred bucks, 200 bucks. Like, just get out of my, just leave me alone. Like I, you're dangerous. Get away from me. So um, this girl leaves. Uh, and then we go to the, we go to the airport. And like I said, that weekend was the same weekend that the book, that a plane went down in Brooklyn, like right after 9-11. They didn't know what was going on. They bring me in. They're like uh, the, the airport security. They just keep looking at me. And I'm like, you know, when I get in the door, I'm high as a kite. And I'm running, talking, talking. And so then, uh, you know, we have to wait for the plane for an hour. And so I'm sitting there and then they come up and they're like, um, the pilots and the security don't believe you should be flying. And I was like, what? It's like, man, I'm not staying here. You're not going to keep me in this place. I was like, you got to take me home. I was like, I'm out of here. They're like, you look drunk. And I was like, I am drunk. I don't care. Take me out of here. I want to leave. I'm not staying. And then they walk away. And I like, that's about like, can you imagine doing that in the middle of an airport? Like <laughs> security, like, and like, I got a black eye, I got blue hair. My knuckles are busted. Like, I mean, I look ridiculous, right? I look crazy as shit. Uh, so they take the, finally the plane gets there. We board. I'm on the plane and I get back in my seat and they come in with like four people and they walk to the back of the plane and they say, Alec, are they like, uh, we need to check your bag. And I'm like, check my bag. I was like, I don't care, whatever. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, man, that, that crazy, that crazy woman put some shit in my bag. They're like, no, we need to check your bag. You have to be there. And I'm like, this ain't good. Uh, so they take me off the plane, walk me down the steps, into the tarmac, into the into the into the hangar. There is my bag sitting in this huge hangar. There's a bag in the middle of this hangar, and two two guards, a uh, military police with with machine guns, standing next to my on each side of my back. And I'm like, fuck me. I was like, man, dude, like. That's it. Like, I was like, this is how the story ends. I'm going to die in a Venezuelan jail. Like, this is all there is. There's like, she put something in my bag. I'm screwed. I'm this it. I'm it. There's no way to beat this one. So, like, I walk up to like, they're like, we you know, open the bag. I'm like, open it. They're like, no, you open it. I was like, all right, whatever. So, I open the bag up, right? And when I open the bag up, like, I pull it, you know, I open it up as much as it can be. And in the middle of my bag, I just taken the, the, the championship belt in the bag didn't think anything of it just and so then, so then they open that up they see this giant and all they were seeing 
you know, was this giant thing in my bag. And so they open it up and they're like, oh, oh, Valley Tudo, champion, champion, ah, you know, and they're like talking, they're like, Oh, you, you know, this was the guy that Jim, the, the guards are laughing, they're joking, they're like, oh yeah, Azul, talking about my blue hair and stuff, they had heard me on the radio, and they, I beat all the Brazilians, and like the Brazilian Venezuelans love me, because I beat all these Brazilians, and they hate the Brazilians, so they were like, ah, you know, I was like, just like, unbelievable, like, that's all it was, like, they were, that was setting them off, they were seeing that through the, through the metal detector, and it was like, looked like I had some giant thing, I'm gonna, they thought I was gonna do something crazy to the plane, so then they take me back and throw me on the plane, and, you know, that was the, <laughs> that was the story. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. That's called, like, Locked Up Abroad, you were yeah, right yeah. there. Yeah, that that's I I, love, I like that show. But it, it sometimes it strikes a little too close. <laughs> like, oh my god, that could have been me, you know? Like that could have been me dying in a Venezuelan jail. So, well, you get that into Brazilian killer, and on December twenty third, two thousand one, Pride eighteen, on two weeks' notice, they throw you up against Alan Goez. Um, how does the fight come about? Were you concerned about the lack of time to prepare for it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's the thing: is like at that time, I just thought I was invincible, so I, it wasn't. Uh, you know, like I, I think I had a total. I think it was like three weeks. They, they, I had enough time to. Well, maybe it was only two weeks. I flew out to. Uh, I had been partying that whole time from Venezuela. I think I almost blew the entire thing the amount of money that I had. I like, you know, I partied the entire time. Uh, so for about two and a half weeks, I partied, and then they called me for this, and I was like, all right. Yeah, let's do it. And they basically told me, like, if you don't do it now, you're not getting it again. And so I was like, well, this is it. So, you know, I went out to Utah. My Muay Thai trainer, Taka Sim, who's now my father-in-law, he, he uh, moved to Utah. I followed him out to Utah and uh, um, ended up uh, uh, training with him for, like, I don't know. I had called him before, the before, and I was like, hey, man, they, they're giving me 10 days to train. Do you think that's enough time? He's like, are you in shape? I was like, yeah, I'm in shape. So I got out there, and he was like, you're not in shape. You lied to me. <laughs> It's like, yeah, but he, he trained me hard in the altitude, uh, you know, and I got enough that I was able to run gas for, you know, 16 or 17 minutes or whatever that fight was. Well, the go is you had Tom Erickson and Jeremy Bolt in your corner. And, uh, <laughs> and like, he had you in a couple tight submissions. So, I mean, they, they he locked them on. Like, the, the one behind my arm, like uh, I still have shoulder issues from him because I caught him and uh, him and a little nog both hit that same arm in the same. Uh, but but uh, it still has some. But I to me I don't even really re remember it a whole lot. I remember rolling through it. Uh, you know there was the people were like, oh, did you tap? And I was like, I don't remember that part of it. I didn't. There was no. There was never an intention for me to tap. I've never had the intention to tap ever. <laughs> right. Uh, and so yeah. He got some tough, uh, but really it was only the one. Uh, the one that was the only thing. It was the arm that went behind my neck. Um, that one was tough. The arm bar was pretty, pretty just kind of rudimentary. He put his foot in the wrong position. It was an easy spin and a uh, way out. But the the one, the one was tough. It was pretty one sided until it wasn't, and it was almost <laughs> as like like when we watch Chris. We've done a couple of these with Chris. Chris like is very comfortable playing the nail. You're comfortable playing the nail, and then when it's time to kind of you know, come out of your hibernation, you do it. And from what I understand, Goez was hospitalized after this with blood on his brain. 
Yeah, and that, and that I mean, I'm pretty sure he ended his career. I think he did come back one time, but it really wasn't supposed to. My statement is, is I'm not sure that he had – he probably – he because you remember the fight before this, he fought Coleman in the tournament, right? And um, he took knee, knee after knee. I would be really surprised if that's not what did this. And then he had a re, re like maybe that happened in that in that fight because I hit him with some good knees, but nothing like I mean not not what Coleman did to him. And uh, so I think if if it wasn't, it was it was that close. And uh, so I just kind of reaggravated, exacerbated the, an underlying condition. Let me ask you how how was it for you? Because here you are, you know, we talked a lot about your Indiana roots, and you know, you got to the UFC before Zufa. Now you got to the IVC at the end of the run. It was a rough show, as we just we just heard a whale of a story. I'm going to force you to listen to it. Um, um, he but, he uh, knows that story. <laughs> He's yeah. heard that story before. Which uh, which one was that about? That that's the one with the girl in Venezuela where I almost died. Oh, the tournament! The tournament, man, awesome, man. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, yeah. but how's so how's arriving in Japan? You know, because that's a little bit different. Like it can be just as dangerous in some ways. You know, we talk about fighters poison and crap like that, but it also they also greet you very suit and tie yeah. with translators and stuff. Talk about your experience because it's pride. This is pride, not pancreas. Yeah. Yeah, this, I mean, and here's the thing is that time they were treating you as good as could be, right? Like, you, I don't know what the, what, I'm sure that now with UFC that they have, like, they're just, they, they treat people really well. Um, at that time, you know, fighters weren't. Uh, and so, like, you walk in there and you were a superstar from the get-go. I mean, they, they, that's how you treated, they treated you, whether you were or not. And uh, they treated you with a lot of respect and treated you as talent. And, uh, you know, so you're walking in there and you're like, you have a liaison that's specifically for you and just whatever questions and things you need. And they're there for for that, to facilitate that and facilitate your timing of places. You know, they have a very regimented schedule and a very, uh, you know, very detailed uh, thing, but they treat you really well. You were at the Tokyo Hilton and, you know, that was some of the coolest stuff is just to be down there with like every top fighter in the world. You know what I'm saying? Like you're eating breakfast with Boss Rutten and all, you know, all the Dutch stars. And, you know, uh, you're down there eat, eating with uh, Fedor and, and the Nogueras and, and Bandelay. And, you know, it was, a you know, Brazilian top team and, and uh, you know, American top team and Lions Den and, you know, dance, you know, uh, just every uh, uh, you know, Don Fry and just every guy that you could you came up watching it all and you're there hanging out with him and you just eat breakfast and we just eat you would just eat for like two hours and just kick it and just talk and share stories and tell crazy stories about this and that and like you know, every story in there was was the equivalent of what I just told you. You know, it was like the craziest <laughs> story you ever heard. But it's just every every culture and every fighter they would have just these crazy stories about you know monkeys biting people and you know like punching people out of car wrecks and just like it was just every and you're just sitting there just like what and then they would be talking about fights it would be this old school hashing of like you know old school fights and it was just every one of them and it was all your heroes in this one spot and then you know the the japanese are treating you like your star anyway so it was it was a it was a culture shock you know, i thought i was i thought I, it was like I, I always related to like uh, living inside a video game you know it was just like it was unreal. It was like surrealistic. So, and you know what's cool is is like he's talking back then. It was just no matter where you go now, UFC, whatever. Like 
the fighters and the groups are kind of distant. Like after the after the fights, they all go to their own after fight party. Back then, everybody stayed together. You know. What I mean? So what he's talking about after the fights or before fights, everybody, all the the best fighters in the world are all hanging out. It was a different thing that I don't think people can understand now because that's not how it is now. But that's how it was. And Pride was at the time by far. I mean, and might might be the best way they treat a fight that's ever happened or ever will happen. I don't know. I don't think it's quite like that anymore. It was just a different feel when the best, all the, like the 10 best guys in the world were there that day, I promise. And they were all hanging out at the Tokyo, you know, yeah. at the Hilton. And it was, everybody was there. It was crazy. It was, when you went there, you're just like, man, yeah, everybody you saw on TV was there hanging out and they were all cool and crazy stories just like we got. And, and that that's not going to come back. I think it's different now, but that was cool. Yeah. There was riffs and stuff, but like you still, you like I said, you ate together, you hung out. Like you know, me and the Brazilians didn't get along at that time, but it was like you still, you still, you still hung out. You know what I'm saying? It was still like uh, you know, there would be some separation, and and but not not like it. Is, I don't know what it is today, but it was pretty. It was pretty awesome just to be in that. It was like you were a part of a brotherhood, is what it was like. It was like you knew what it was like. Nobody else would step in and do these things like. It didn't matter if it was the Lions then guys or who it was or the Dutch guys. You were all kind of all the all the same all the same breed, right? So everybody liked each other. Now I do remember Even this. So I think. I, go ahead, Miguel. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, didn't Vanderlei call you out? In one of those, <laughs> like, give you mean faces and stuff. Uh, you, you know, you like every every story I got, you gonna pull out. So yeah, so. Um, <laughs> And this is happening at the same time, and this is, again will relate back to like I don't glorify my use, but I had some, uh, you know, again had got some party favors. We were flying from one party, uh, one part of uh, Japan to another fight um, because it wasn't in Tokyo the first fight. Um, and when we did, we were like in this, you know, a national airport. The Brazilians started walking one way, but they were walking by themselves. They weren't walking with their liaisons. And like I made a, a joke uh, on the expense of the Brazilians. Uh, I was like, you know, don't those dudes. I'm not sure those dudes can read, so let's not follow them. And um, uh, that that and everybody laughed. Well, when everybody laughed, Bandelay turned around and saw that it was me making the joke, and he 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 didn't know the language, but he knew he was at the expense of that joke, and he did not like that. And um, so then, you know, shortly after that, we go to like, uh, um, we go to, you know, like the, we get in the little airport area waiting for our flight. Uh, I'm on that flight with them. Uh, like we're sitting there waiting and uh, like I, everybody kind of walked away. I was sitting there with uh, Big Daddy Goodrich and, and um, Erickson. And so like I got up to Good do choice. something. And, and Vandalay walks up to me and he was like, you look at me. And I was like, I am looking at you. He's like, no, you look at me. And I'm like, I am looking at you. Meanwhile, I got, you know, stuff in my pocket that I shouldn't have in a Tokyo airport. He's like, you look at me. And I'm like, man, all I can think about was like, I'm probably going to go to jail over this shit. But I was like, this is one hell of a story. I was like, but he's like, you look at me. I am looking at you. What he's saying is you looked at me and I didn't get that. But he's balling his fist up and we're ready to rock. His whole group is right there, like all of, 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 of you know, shoebox uh, is sitting there. All of shoebox is sitting there, like, I mean, a foot from me. I was like, this is not going to go well. I got Jeremy, <laughs> I got Jeremy Bolt over there on my back right there. He's like <laughs> five foot two, 130 pounds. I got, uh, of course, me shoebox. I was like, this is not going to go good. 
But uh, yeah, so that that's how that started. Then after that, it was like then I became the Brazilian killer, just kind of to thumb my nose at him and even, even more. Hey, I remember too. The next time I went, I went over to pry with you. They put me in your room right there, and on the left of him was a uh, Van Lane. On the right, I think was sh like Shogun or something. Like they sandwiched our rooms in between. So every time we went to our rooms. Those guys have to walk right past us. Like they did that shit on purpose, man. They yeah, were just yeah. trying to cause a fight. I can tell, man. That's I funny. thought, I thought, were, did, were you and me in the same room, or were you with? Uh, I think they had separated. Like oh, I thought I was in my. I can't remember. I felt like I was on my own in my room. Yeah, you had your separated. own room. I had my own room. I was in. Like, but they right. had the they had the Brazilians like around and surrounded us. Right, so right. Like, man, they're trying to cause a fight here. <laughs> every time we come out, they open the door. They're like Van Lee standing. Like yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There was like this little bend in the hallway, and they put Chris on one side of the bend, and then they put the shoot box guys all around me, and then put me in the middle of that mix. <laughs> it was a problem, man. They were trying to cause a problem. I, I came out of the room with taped up. I, I there was multiple <laughs> times I was like, I would leave my hands taped after practice and have a mouthpiece yeah. pocket just in case something popped off. I was like, hey, here we go. <laughs> wow, wow. Well, I'm assuming that was the Wanderlei Silva or the. Uh... Walid Ishmael fight. It yes. was February 24, 2002. Um, I know you had kind of left Indianapolis at that time and you trained with Boss Rutten for a little bit. Yeah. Um, and that's the airport incident, from what I understand, took place at this time. Am I correct? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I thought the airport, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure the airport one, that happened on the original, my first one, the Goez fight. Well, and then, okay. um, so because that one, that fight took place in Fukoku. And um, uh, so that's where that one happened. And then afterwards, I went and trained with Boss. And, you know, that was a crazy story. You know, that was, that was crazy in itself. But uh, we, we, Boss is always up for a party. So we would be partying in LA and working out nonstop. And, you know, that was a good time. Well, Walid Ishmael, also somebody that's not afraid to voice their opinion. Um, the pre-fight, did you guys ever kind of run into each other in the hotel lobby? Any issues? I don't remember him. I remember just talking crap on the, like, pre-fight game stuff. But and he was just, you know, Walid just was, uh, you know, he's still managing people and stuff. Uh, he's a smart business guy. But that's, you know, he was – he just ran his mouth. I can't remember, uh, like, just during the pre-fight stuff. I don't remember any, any kind of – I don't specifically remember anything happening in the in the lobby or anything. But he could have. I don't remember. <laughs> Chris, do you remember running into Daryl Golar? He was in Waleed's corner. I don't remember any. Did, did I remember the thing happening? Why? Okay, no, I'm just curious. Golar, you know, uh, standout wrestler, American, actually moved to Brazil with Waleed to kind of teach shootbox, uh, you know, the American ways of wrestling. Yeah, yeah I remember. I, I I remember seeing those guys there, but I don't remember anything happening. <clears throat> anything happening with him there? No. So you beat Waleed. So you're like six Brazilians in a row right now. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and that was the, you know, I did the the Brazilian killer and I did that when I came into him. I still didn't have a very good performance with Waleed. Uh, you know, like I, you know, my, my stand-up game wasn't as good as I, you know, had hoped at that time. Uh, but uh, I also didn't, you know, just didn't control the fight. I kind of just tried some sloppy stuff. I mean, it wasn't uh, it wasn't as strong of a, of a showing as I wish I'd had made, um, but you know, it, it's what it was. It was a it was I think it was when it just a decision on him. There was no submission or anything like that. Uh, so, 
yeah, I was six in and uh, thought thought I was invincible at that time. Anderson Silva, what kind of notice did you take that fight on? Um, I mean, I think they say three days. I think I had three days before, like, to train. And, and it was one of those things that I did the same thing. Like, I, I was kind of like, you know, when you talk about sobriety, I was really kind of crazy at that time. And as far as, like, just not very stable uh, emotionally. And so, like, I had to put a lot of my uh, worth into fighting. And so, like, if I wasn't fighting, I didn't really know. And I would have these huge, like, depressional states when I would come off, I would fight and I'd be on the top of the world. And, you know, I would, I would use uh, for uh, several weeks at a time. And then it would just crash on me, like, you know, just absolute levels of depression. And so I got into one of these things and I was calling people like mad, like, cause I was supposed to fight somebody else at some point and then they didn't put me on the show. And then I was just constantly calling Phyllis and I was calling all kinds of people. And I was like, you know, I need to be, and I think two weeks before or something, they were like, absolutely, you're not going to be on this show. And then, you know, Paulo, I think it was Paulo Filio, yeah. they dropped out. And so they were like, here, take this, uh, you know, if you've been begging us for a fight, now here's a fight. And, uh, you know, and I'd stopped training. Uh, and it was, you know, wasn't, I don't know that that would have, <laughs> how quick that fight went. I'm not sure my, my level of training would have mattered a whole lot. Because <laughs> obviously we didn't get to the point of tired. So I'm not sure that would have changed much. So Anderson Silva, future world champion, one of the greatest fighters ever to live. Um, he's at a shoot box, and your your, your pre fight interview is real interesting. Do you remember it? And uh, not specifically, no. You're talking about Miss Rose, the kindergarten teacher. <laughs> I, I didn't even know what that meant. Yeah, yeah, it was it was uh, the kindergarten teacher for Boss Rutten's daughter, and she was. Very, very beautiful. Uh, and like, I, you know, they were trying to like set me up and then like, yeah, that was all it was. I think it was just kind of like he was going to show it to her afterwards and he you know, set me up for the thing afterwards. But that, that's, yeah, it was a. Like a little inside joke. Did they put that on national TV? That's so weird. They did. They didn't edit that out. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, they did not. You know, and um, with Anderson Silva, he lands a kick to the face. You actually caught it and take him down with it. Yeah, you know, and it seemed like you're recovering, and then they stop it because of the cut. Yeah, I mean, so like, it, here's the thing: is like, they're like, oh, you you caught that kick, and you're going. I was throwing a right hand. That's how slow I actually was. It was like I was throwing a right hand. He was so fast to kick me at the same time. My right hand was already coming. It didn't. That was. It looked like some big treetop. That was just a like a, hand, a right hand that was coming. He caught me so quick that that it came down, and it looked like oh, I recovered. Um, I was spinning to get on top, but I like as soon as we hit the ground, he had white shorts on. They went red. I was like, "That's not a good sign." Uh, <laughs> better try and finish this thing fast. Uh, and uh, you know, they stopped it. it. It was obvious. I think I took 18 stitches, nine, nine maybe internally. Uh, yeah. So, well, you also took your trunks off. Yeah. They had yeah. Brazilian killer written on them. Yeah, yeah. So I mean. I think we had talked about, you know, just being unstable uh, for that emotionally. And I think when I'd done that, I did this big brash thing and did this. And I was like, man, dude, this dude just bested me. You know, like, I'm not going to sit here and uh, walk around with this stuff and, uh, you know, like, claim this moniker. If, if the guy beats me, he beats me, man. He just took it, right? It's just like you don't get to keep the title when somebody beats you, man. If you're going to – whether that's a, a ring belt or a, a moniker you gave yourself, uh, he took it, man. So I gave it to him. Now, now, Alex, I remember uh, uh, talking to you about, 
you know, when you moved away and you you started training all the time, I know you're talking about the highs and the lows and everything, the extreme highs and the extreme lows. I remember one point you tell me, man, you know, this used to be a lot of fun. Now this isn't as much fun. It's like a job. I mean, do, can you talk about that? It's just feeling like how, how things changed for you mentally because the highs got higher, lows got lower. It just seemed like a different state of mind when you when this was your job. Um, and I think that like, I always admire, uh, you talked about Takahashi earlier, and I always admired a lot of the Japanese dudes, and I admired you for this, too. It's like you didn't have, like, you didn't put a lot of, uh, you know, value, self-value to, 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 to this. This was something that you did and that you liked. For me, this was like, you know, I had always kind of been second best my whole life, and this was like my, my thing to, like, kind of prove people, like, hey, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm this good. I'm great. Um, and I put a lot of value on that. And uh, so when, you know, the highs were high, I was out because that, that, that was because what I thought myself of value, my value was. Um, and then when that was not there, you know, that value went down with it, too. And it just wasn't stable enough to, to be able to uh, to to handle that, uh, that, <laughs> that emotional roller coaster. Like I just had too much to I put too much too much worth on it. Um, and so that's where it really came from is like. You know, when, when we were just banging it out and having fun down there, you know, like, I, I guess it was too early for me to have that that value yet. It was just me going out there and having fun, just fighting like I would fight at a, a street fight or, a, you know, a party or anything like that. It was it was just, I don't know, it was different, right? I don't think people realize the emotional tax that this sport takes on people. And that's, I mean... I, I'm sure it's even worse nowadays with, I mean, social media and everybody in the world, this is their worth and how many people are, you know, fully invested in this. And when things are going great, they're, they're good. And when not, man, people crash. I mean, it's, it's very tough mentally to be part of this sport, especially, I think. Well, you know, the crash is here. We're on the precipice of it. So you lose to Anderson Silva, you hand your trunks over to uh, his manager, Rodrigo Federigo, who is, Throwing them up and down with joy. But, you know, in all honesty, you did the right thing. You did yeah. the honorable thing, yeah. like, at that moment. Um, they put you in against Yuki Sasaki. You lose a decision. You fight Marvin Eastman on Jamie Levine's show. You get knocked out. And then Akira Shoji, who we talked about earlier, you lose a split decision. You lose four in a row. Yeah. Like, you were on this incredible wave. And then, boom, people either, you know, started kind of figuring you out. Yeah. So, uh, one is, like, you would get thrown into these fights, but Phyllis's management style was, like, just throw you into anything. And that was great when you weren't, when you weren't, you know, when you weren't anybody. Uh, but when you were had a name, then they were trying to pay you for everything. The 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 Pancrase deal was, like, Chris will tell you, those decisions are those decisions. I wish, like, and now I've seen that fight. And somebody was like, oh, it's a rare Alex Steven fight. Somebody showed it to me the other day, like somebody from work was like, oh, look at this. And I was like, that's the edited version because it's nine minutes and the fight was 15 minutes. And I stomped a dude out for 15 minutes, but they edited it <laughs> and made it look <laughs> like that's who won the fight. Um, and they didn't show me, knock the guy out and the guy go into the ring ropes and they stop the fight and let the guy recover and then restart the fight. They don't show me stomping on the guy on top of him. Uh, stuff in every takedown he has. Like, I mean, it was like, um, and so, but that's what it was, um, you know. And if you don't finish the fight, 
that's you know when you walk in there that like if you're not going to finish it then then that's a possibility a strong possibility that happened i maybe not did maybe not agreed with the shoji fight but that certainly was a much closer fight uh and you could obviously make an argument that he won the fight I, um you could say that but that's true but marvin obviously he knocked me out um and then who was the other there was four in a row uh who was the other well, wait, did Jamie Levine, did you, issues, did you have any issues with Jamie Levine, the promoter for WEF? Uh, no, not, not specifically. No, and, and I didn't really work. There was another guy that, that I can't remember his name uh, that, that was a promoter that I usually work with from WEF. But no, I didn't have any specific uh, specific problems with them. They would try and put me with fights, and sometimes I was like, yay or nay, but um, I can't remember specifically who it was. But I feel like there was four fights that I lost there. I'm, I've, got, I've forgotten one of them. I don't remember who it was. Anderson. Oh yeah, Anderson was one of them, right? Yeah, that was one yeah. of the. Yeah. So two of them were obvious. Uh, two of them were maybe not, but at the same time, I was I was really, like I said, I was really. It was what it was. Yeah, it was. People started to figure out, hey, he's not just the this or that, and like if you stay on him, he can, he can get points. Yeah. Now I I know you've been very very honest and and forthcoming. I we we love that. I appreciate it very much. I I don't. You don't want to talk. You don't want to talk. But here you may really be in a dark spot because you mentioned, you know, you get IVC money, you got 10,000 bucks, you blew it in a couple of weeks partying, right? Yeah. Now, the in money to pride is good, but not that great. You could blow that in a couple of months. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and is that the cycle you were in? Yeah, yeah. And I was. And not only that, but like right after the Anderson fight, I caused like a six car wreck in, the, uh, in Utah. I ran from the police. I ended up in jail. Um, like I had to use my money for that. Um, I was in this, uh, you know, I started dating my trainer's daughter, uh, kind of not kind of, but uh, behind his back. Uh, she was, you know, uh, she was 19 years old. I was like 25 at the time. So like it, there was, uh, I was not stable, uh, mentally. And so, you know, you can see that reflected i don't know like i i think i was just a tough dude you know what i'm saying and you're talking about these these are you're starting to get to such high level athletes anderson silva one of the best athletes out there you know and then so you kind of start to run into where tough's not enough you know what i'm saying so and that's that's i think some of what you saw was tough's not enough and some of what you saw was a part of that emotional makeup that was was occurring well, they fly out to Helsinki thinking that like it's easy pickings, and you got Miko uh, Raponen who's ten zero and two, and um, man, that's an interesting fight. Like you went into an absolute setup, you choked the guy unconscious. The referee refuses to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> the bell rings, and the guy's just like laying out as you walk back to your corner, and you're still not sure that they're going to raise your hand. Yeah. So um, we went in there and like it was a trip, like the whole thing was a trip, like the, the like my buddy, my he he I didn't know, like my boxing coach went with me. It's the first time he had gone with me. And then he was like he was pointing out, I was like, see how these dudes are dressed. That's like that's like like absolute like some, you know. The, the crowd was like he pointed out like looked like neo nazis now not not the majority not all of them you know what i'm saying and i and i made this statement before and like some of the people in finland got upset and i don't mean that everybody there but there was a, there was a large uh, group of that and i'm not sure that they were neo nazis but they had their heads shaved and were dressed in in a, in a style that i didn't even know it but my boxing coach identified as that 
Um, and so this thing went off, um, you know, I, somehow, like, you know, you said, like, people started to figure it, figure you out. Somehow he didn't figure out that I was a wrestler or didn't do enough. His manager didn't do enough background checks to find out that I wrestled in college because he was mostly a grappler. Um, and he, you know, like they thought I was going to stand up. And so, like, I went out there and, like, I think I started training with Horn at the time. And he was like, man, you need to go back to getting some wrestling in there and getting control of the fights. And uh, so I went out there and I like shot a low takedown. I started controlling them. And uh, yeah, I ended up triangle. I'd been working on my jiu-jitsu a little bit more. I, I triangle choked him, choked him unconscious. And um, like I'm walking back. I'm like, the dude's unconscious. You got to stop that. And the, and the ref just wasn't doing it. They tried to wake him up. They tried to get him to go fight again. Uh, but he was out long enough that they couldn't. My boxing coach, he's trying to cut my gloves off. And I'm like, dude, don't cut my gloves off. They're going to make me go out there and fight, finish this fight. He's like, no, we're done. He's like, you see these guys over here? They're coming for you. <laughs> All right, whatever, man. We cut the gloves. I don't even know if I got my hand raised. I just, like, ran out of the ring. Yeah. yeah no, I, I, you know, I, I can attest to some of what you said. Like, first of all, Finland – it's not it's just facts they're all white right and they're all yeah. light skin whites you know now you had you had muscles no shirt suspenders camouflage pants and boots hey what do you what does it look like you know <laughs> <laughs> so I, I told her and that fin fight show i believe is maybe the last show on earth uh where they had headbutts that was an all-out nhb world show I, I don't know that it was at that time when I when I fought him, but the other aspect uh, was like Miko ended up coming and training with me. Like I loved Miko, and Miko stayed with me for like six months or a year, and uh, he was a good dude. And um, his manager was a good dude too. They like they weren't like I don't want to portray them as being in some level of yeah. They weren't. They they absolutely weren't. I think there was just a sector of the crowd that maybe looked like that. Um, and you're right. Maybe it could just be uh, a fashion that like didn't didn't cross from. It might mean some one thing <laughs> in the states and one thing in Finland. Uh, you know. So yeah. Yeah, you lost the playing in the background. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're the second person. We David Finkelden, and yeah, and he said the exact same things. Like, no man, it's different. It's different. So, well, one of my favorite promoters, Randy Greenman from the Really Shoot Fighting. Randy <laughs> St. Louis standout Mike Rogers, who's got a phenomenal school still today, uh, January 2nd, 2004. That was a hell of a card. You had Chris versus Spratt, yourself versus Mike Rogers. Um, so, and again, that was one of the things that, like, uh, I've been working with Jeremy, and uh, he was just like, man, just wrestle. Go out there and do what you do and do this part of it, and then once you get yourself reestablished in that, in that part of the in the game, because I was reeling. I was just barely winning. You know, it had been so long since I'd been winning fights. You know, you go almost a year without wins. And then, you know, I got the win with Miko. But I was trying to get back in some big shows and get bigger money. And, um, you know, it, I didn't I, I didn't have the firefighter gig to, to fall back on like Chris did. So I was uh, I was I was hustling it to make my, you know, my couple thousand on a fight and, and survive until the next fight. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of a really slow fight. Just uh, took him down, wrestled him. Uh, didn't do. Wasn't a lot of a lot of explosion to it. Uh, but uh, you know, just trying to get some 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 semblance of, of victory back underneath me. Did, did you get the phone calls when he turned up missing the promoter? <laughs> what happened? When he you turned know he got his head chopped like, off, don't you, Alex? Yeah, the biker gangs got him. They that guy got killed, Randy Greenman. <laughs> what? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. 
Damn. I remember, I remember once we went back. I, I think I fought there a second time and you were there. And he was like, he was like, you going to fight for me again, Alex? And you said something. He was like, remember I gave you that nice belt? And you go, you mean that white belt with tinfoil wrapped around it? And you can just tell he like took all the wind out of his head. He was like, <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious, dude. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I remember doing like a bunch of promotion. I remember like it was kind of just weird. Like I remember driving around in a limo for like something like for hours they're going to some like uh, thing, you know, some radio show. I can't remember, but uh, yeah, that's that's a that's a that's a trip. But here's the thing: is like back in these days, another thing is, is like a lot of shows were were tied to nefarious, you know, stuff, right? Like it didn't matter how large of the production it was, there was nefarious stuff tied to it. Uh, you know, that was the joke: is we'd walk around and uh, you know, we uh, me and Chris would always walk around like this. You know, what, what was it like? How do we walk? You know, like the like you're missing, you're missing a pink, you know, a finger <laughs> over in Japan. Yeah. That was our signal because you didn't say yakuza, but yeah. you, you know, like you you walked over and you're like, you like, look at that dude's hand, and you know, this guy's walking around missing a finger because he had screwed up in the yakuza and cut his finger off, and you know, so that's that's oh, I didn't know that stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, it was Randy. He, the biker gangs were there, and you know, you noticed that when the fights were going on, I didn't really think much of it, but until he ended up dead, I was like, oh, I guess he. Mess with the wrong people or got in on somebody's territory or whatever. I don't know exactly what happened, but damn. still, no matter what, Chris, no matter what, you got to rate Randy 10 times head and shoulders above Ed Kim. Hey, hey, no, he, hey, I got paid. I got paid by this guy. And, and he made, he, he put on some fantastic fights. How many UFC veterans were on those cards? A lot yeah. of them, man. I mean, he put on some great fights. Ant Man Bill Kimperian versus Shirk, uh, Shirk versus Parisian. But yeah. you know, before we open up to this open questions, let's just do one more fight. One of my favorites of all time of yours. When we talk about the grit of a human being, so you can kind of see what they're made of, their actual metal. January 16, 2004, WEC9, Joe Riggs. <laughs> yeah. Before so I even comment, what is your feelings of this fight? So what I'll tell you is I'll tell you what my wife says. She's like, you used to have a pretty nose until you fought Joe. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I just I went out there. It was not, you know, it was just not um, yeah, like he, he was just he was a good fighter. He was fast. He was athletic. Like if, if anybody had been able to keep their mental game together. Like Joe was just as uh, every bit as unstable as me mentally, uh, as far as like emotional ability. You know, he was just all he was just up and down, up and down. You know, he he, he needed, uh, you know, and I, he trained with me too. Like all these dudes afterwards, they would come train and train with me, and I would like open up my house, and these guys would stay with me, and uh, um, he, you know, he beat the piss out of me. He beat the piss out of me, and it was just one of those things where he just got tired, and I think he just felt like, oh, this guy's got, I'm not going to stop. So I like I don't know <laughs> he just I can't believe he, he like I, I caught him with that but uh, he was uh, he beat the piss out of me until until I got that choke. Chris, here's the thing about this: it's so one sided. Like this is like Nick Thompson, former Bodog champion, went on record saying that he's never seen a more one sided fight than this. And as you lock in the triangle at the end, your own corner throws the towel in. I didn't know that. All you got to do is look in the corner of the screen. You see the towel fly over. You win the fight, and your corner throws the towel in. 
I didn't. I didn't really. I think he might have told me. Griff might have told me he was throwing the towel in. I'm not quite sure, but I remember just like I was absolute beat to hell. Like my face was mashed. Like I, they took me back in the in the locker room and like I, I'm not. This sounds like crazy, but like it was like dudes like Josh Thompson and Eves Edwards and really good fighters. And like dude, there was like a procession. I couldn't even see him because my face was beaten shut. But like I was laying there, and as I'm laying there with my eyes closed, dudes would be like, "Oh my God, that was that was so tough. You were so tough." Like, and it was it was this line of dudes would come by and just tell me this. I just remember being like thinking, like, I, "God, what do I look like right now?" Like, uh, you know, I remember uh, Matt Lindland kind of uh, joking on me. He was like, "Dude, that guy gave you everything." And, uh, Couture is like, "That guy gave you everything you could." And I was like, "I, I know this. <laughs> you see this? I know this." Like I know this. Like, uh, like right after the fight, like we, like one of the things you shouldn't fly if you've taken that kind of beating because, like, uh, the pressure changed. And so, like, uh, I could see a little bit before I got, but when I got off that plane, I could barely see. There were like people were pulling their children away from me in the airport because they were like, they were like, oh my god, you know, like just look at the guy. What's, what's wrong with that guy? Like, I'm just all mashed up like it took me like a week to recover from that thing it was brutal i remember talking to you after that fight and you go, chris i think this fight took two years off my life I'm like, <laughs> you know and then i watched it like damn man i mean it just uh i mean you know i've fought joe too he is I mean, especially when you ever train with him he's one of the most talented guys you're ever gonna yeah. see out there man i when we fought i took him down we we, we trained for two weeks after that i never took him down once i'm like the dude is so good i, I mean that uh you know, I, I knew he, he came in there and, you know, he didn't know who he was. He's a heavyweight guy dropping down to 205. And I mean, you know, but since you beating him was like, like a, when they say that one of the most one-sided, it's one of the most one-sided fights I've seen where the other guy wins. You know what I mean? That That's, yeah. I mean, you, you, you just showed your toughness by, I think you had a couple other tough, tough fights like that where you were losing, just came back and just hardcore tough guy and, and, and won. And that was a cool thing about your career is just like, man, you know, whatever deficiencies I have, you know, yeah. the best thing you can have is mental toughness. And you, you definitely showed that, but uh, you don't want to, you don't want to show that shit all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Never, a, never, a, count it out. never count them out. <laughs> that was a, you know, I, he, he, I remember too, man. I remember, I don't know if you remember this when one of my fights, you know, and, I, and we've documented this, we've talked about this when I fought like Nick Diaz and like, I, I wanted to quit the the sport after that. I remember sitting there with you in that like shitty little hotel room. I think Nate Diaz even came over for a while and uh, somewhere in California, I can't remember the middle of nowhere, some terrible, the Paul Bunyan Lodge or something. I can't remember what it is, but, and you'd be like, man, he's like just talking about me wanting to quit and be like, man, I'm going to go through this at some point. I know, you know, it's like, everybody's going to go through this in their fight career. And I remember thinking later on the fourth side of you seeing that. Cause when you're, in it, you never think that's going to happen to you. I mean, you're you're oblivious to the truth, I think, and you just think that things are going to go well forever. But to have that foresight, I'll never forget. I was like, damn, he, he, he foresaw everything, and I never did that. Uh, I was hurting at the time, and you helped me out. But I, I always just thank you for that. That really helped me out. But, uh, yeah, I, I just remember always thinking what foresight to know that we're all going to go through that in the fight business. So true. Uh, I, I remember like you come and bringing that back up for me. The one thing that I would say is like you were able to overcome that. And I think me, we talked about this before being like so tied to the emotional aspect of it that that kind of really broke me, you know, like that Joe Riggs fight, like I fought and I won and I beat that. And I went on to beat a couple more guys and fought 
some other tough dudes like Noguera, but never really kind of regained that that thing. And it really did change something in me where I was like, I, something else has to change here. And then, you know, ultimately that was le what led to, you know, going and moving on from the sport and, and changing how I lived and how I did it. And we talked a little bit about sobriety before, but uh, th those things were what, some of the things that started that was, was uh, you know, which I'm really grateful for fighting because, you know, how long in life could you go through this without without knowing that stuff? You you train with Walt Bailey? No, I never got to train with him. So I trained with Griffin, who was his student and took over his gym. And they would tell stories of Walt Bayless like he was fucking Paul Bunyan. I'm not joking. Like he would he just like. And uh, just the stories they would tell about this dude, like, you know, he got a tryout with a, the, the, the Cowboys and they, they offered him a, a, like a rookie position, you know, just walk on. And he's like, what? How do you walk on to the Cowboys? Like just every story they had, this dude was like this amazing dude. And his jiu-jitsu was legit. He picked it and put it together from wrestling and Sambo. And, uh, you know, the guy's like – and you, you knew it wasn't bull crap. Like I, it took – like it was probably three years before I even met the guy. But um, like then you would talk to Dan Henderson. He'd be like, "Well, why don't you go train with Walt?" Like he knew him. Like uh, like dudes in the top like Olympic tiers, they knew who this dude was uh, because he was legit. But he was one of those dudes just like he was always in the uh, like in the background. Never never really got to uh, never went out there and did it and uh, competed. It he I think he had a different level of motivation in life than we did. So, but yeah, that's yeah, wild. <laughs> He may he may have the world's most expensive black belt. He only did privates with with uh, Pedro Sauer to get it. Jesus. Now, well, so I don't know that I don't know what what the backstory of that is. I don't know any of that. What I do know is that like this dude came up and was like a standout wrestler in Southern California. He trained at the he was training with at the Olympic uh, the Olympic you know training center in Colorado. He trained with all those dudes like Dan Henderson and Couture and all those all those dudes knew who he was. Um, he was like a sambo. He would uh, I can't remember. Um, so who's the what's the um, the Olympic wrestler that got killed and made the movie about his brother? Dave uh, Schultz. Schultz. Mark. Schultz. Mark Schultz. So Mark Schultz. Schultz. Mark Schultz was out there. They would tell stories about how. He would best Mark Schultz in the room. Like, I mean, just crazy stuff. So I don't know that that's – I don't know what part of that story is real. You never really know what <laughs> the Walt Bayless stories, what is real. Uh, but, I mean, these – like, the guys that talk about it, they're not liars. They're not, like – and they're talking about this dude. Like, he's got crazy stories. But, yeah. You also trained with Joe Riggs when – he was uh, working out at Roland Saria's gym, like Brasa top team. Um, so what the, how that happened is almost like, I mean, it was crazy, you know, because I did this. The, what, Miko came over and trained with me. Japanese dudes would come over and train with me. I had like this kind of like international uh, fight house. It was like in, in this house was like a broke down place. It was crazy. It was like. You know, people called it Paper Street because it was just like the, you know, you, you like I wouldn't have hot water. Like I wouldn't be able to pay my water. Also, like, you wouldn't get hot water. You'd have to take a cold shower in there, you know. And um, like uh, Miko came over and Joe, he came over and stayed for a while. He his, The accommodations weren't to his liking, so he stayed somewhere else. But he trained with us. Um, he, and then, 
you know, he, he came up and trained and then like he was training with Horn for a while. So he trained with us for maybe like one or two fights. He ended up training with us right before Chris's fight. Um, and then um, he went and trained with Horn for a number of times. But then he was fighting Franklin and those kind of things and Hughes. So they, they separated. What about Justin Ellison? Uh, he was one of those – Justin Ellison, I'm pretty sure, was one of the Walt Bayless guys. He, he, like, yeah. he, I don't remember him really being much of a uh, – like a, like anything outside of like a regional fighter. Uh, but he trained with uh, – he was he was a good jiu-jitsu guy. Uh, one of those guys that like just didn't – wasn't like uh, – uh, didn't didn't make big big name fights or anything like that. Um, but he was he was a good – a really good jiu-jitsu guy. He ended up being really close with Horn uh, and training with him for a number of years. Hmm. Yeah. It seemed like you wanted to give a shout out. You you mentioned you forgot his name a couple of times. A reporter in uh, in Venezuela that helped you out. I'm gonna take a reach here. Was it Aaron Creasy? It was. Oh, I love that dude. I love that. We actually he actually ended up fighting on one of Hume's cards up and up and uh, he never had fought before. And he went out there and he just got in the ring and fought like a, a fight up a Hume's fight. Uh, just so he could be one of you know he could say that he did it and be a part of. It. I mean, he fought like a he was a he was like a pretty good little wrestler, man. So and he had trained. Uh, so he went out there and just saw what he could do, and he won the fight. And I remember that being a big celebration. I love that dude. He was a good dude, man. Yeah, what was it like? It, working out with Matt Hume and Josh Barnett. What was that? What was that crew like? And then I'm it done. Was, it was really because McDonald was up there from K1. Maurice was there. And it was kind of like those heyday things. And Chris has talked about it. It's like you would go to a gym and it was okay to like just pick up and go to, you know, Boss Rutten's gym. And like I would go to Couture's gym and train for three weeks. And I would go to, you know, Hume's gym. And like if you had a fight coming up, you know, I, well, I went and trained. You know, that might have been a mistake because I went and trained with all these dudes. And then like and then you fight <laughs> one of their guys and they know the end on how to beat you. Uh, but, uh, you know, it still was cool. It's uh, a cool aspect. I love Barnett. Uh, he was a really good dude, man. We kind of really got along. I got along with Ivan Salberry. You know, I talked to those dudes for years, but they were they were really good human beings. Chris? Man, Alex, um, just awesome to get to talk to you, man. Uh, one thing, I've always been super proud of the fact that most people, when they get in this fight game, they don't get out, man. It just becomes a, a black hole and sucks people in. But, I mean uh, – You've done great things, and going back to school, uh, and, and I mean, just just kill it, man. I'm very happy for you, and proud of what you've been able to do. I know, especially looking back for you know, 1999. A lot of people look at us; they would have never thought we would actually have any kind of positive thing in our life. Maybe some kind of jail sentence or something. But I mean, working at a bar is a bouncer right now, so I think we proved a lot of people wrong. Really happy to have you on here, and uh, just hope people can understand. Go back and watch some of your fights and understand. Yes. I mean, I don't think you're going to ever see the level of uh, mental toughness and, and yeah. like determination that you've showed out there. It's awesome. I, mean, you, I, I look at a lot of times, there's so many fighters, so many fighters who are bullies, are front runners, are so athletic, so good, but they, they don't like getting hit. They're just, they're just, if something goes wrong, they mentally break. I, I, I prefer guys who overachieve. I think that was you, you know, you're just a, a, a hard-nosed guy who could overachieve and, and accomplish it. I love that about you. So, man, thanks for being on here, dude. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, that was actually when I did worse was when I was supposed to win, right? <laughs> like, if you gave me no shot, then I was going to, I was going to, I was going to kill it. You know what I'm saying? But um, yeah, so, uh, I, but I do appreciate it. I, I love this. One of the, 
best parts of it was just to have this experience with guys like you, Chris and uh, Miguel and have, you know, just go through this and then have, have learned these lessons through life and through this sport and, you know, to have this discipline and take it and apply it to other parts of the area, you know, so any guy, any guys out there that are going through it becoming fighters right now, know there's a life after it, like me and Chris have, uh, you know, that there's something beyond this and, uh, you know, the, the, the end is not the, is not the means here, you know, it's the struggle and learning how to do this stuff and get through it. Uh, that's what, what ends up being the most important aspect of it. Agreed, man. Chris, hey, man, let's uh, go ahead, man. Well, yeah, Alex, we're not that far. We're getting together here soon. I ain't kidding, man. All right, bud. <laughs> Thank we'll you, man. Yeah, man. Hit, hit me up some uh, sometime when you come over. We'll go get some, go get some dinner or something, man. Yeah, yeah, Chris, right, B- man. Chris, BKFC might be going to Utah. Yeah, but he lives in Kentucky. I live oh, in you're Kentucky. You're in Louisville? Now. You back in he Louisville? Man, my sister lives like- there, and, and, and we're talking about going down there too to BKR. Bare knuckles trying to get there, so we're like a, we're like an hour and a half away, but like you know, it's just live. You got kids and you're doing stuff, and you just like you look up and you're like, oh, it's been another two years. Like I know, man. Now we'll I'm, get there I'm, sometime. I'm serious. Alex, I was in school for ten and a half years, though. Ten and a half years, and so like <laughs> I kept being like, yeah, when this when this stuff gets over, ten and a half yeah. years. Right. Right. I, I saw the thing says it's like being adults, like saying, oh. Next week's gonna like like it, it'll get better next month and then next then you die. I mean that's just <laughs> like, my 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 stuff's gonna lighten up here. It never does, man. I always make I would put more shit on my on my plate, man, and I gotta stop doing that. So I hear you. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks, Thanks bro. I appreciate it. Well, Mike, there it is. The Brazilian killer, Alex Steibling, Steibling, <laughs> is in the book. I, I like how you said it twice. Yeah, one of hey, those I, is right. The thing is, they, it showed in the interview too, because I, I I say Stiebling just out of that's how I called him his whole career. You know, that's how I introduced him to people and stuff like that. And now in my old age, and you know, I'm realizing I mispronounced it. He laughed. He was like, he kind of forgave me, I think, in the interview. But he knows I've been mispronouncing it his whole career. He just he never corrected me. So you, uh, what's weird? I didn't get it. <laughs> like in the Midwest, I mean, that's how you you know it's Stiebling. You know, but you know, and he's from the Midwest, really. So yeah. Oh, it's all on me. I'm not. I'm, the confusion is all self-inflicted here. I'm, I'm <laughs> stupid. But you know, but yeah, no. I that's I recognize that in there, and that was one of the. That, that's what I enjoyed most about the interview is that, um, Chris was back. Really, yeah. That that was the touch that that this interview needed, especially. Um, he had so much, and then when he knows the guy, it's just multiplied. Um, and uh, you know, he brought him to me, so we had that common experience stuff. And and uh, you know, I, th- I think we got Alex talking. We got him walking down memory lane. We got him putting a really positive Alex Stiebling for now on display, and that was really good too. That that felt really good because guys mistreated like this in the sport, and you know, a guy like like you know who just didn't give a f. You know, like himself, like he said many times in the interview where that was on, you know, you sometimes you're looking for a tragedy and we didn't get we didn't get one again. And that, that makes oh, me really that's happy. a good thing. That's he a good thing. Really, yeah. Yeah. And you know, not only did we not get a tragedy, which is always our goal, um, we got him talking. It was a pretty cool period in history as well. I mean, you had a guy from Oklahoma, you know, moving to Indianapolis, hooked up with Lytle, Godsey, and, you know, all those guys. And 
you know, all of a sudden he's calling out the entire country of Brazil. It, it was, you know, pretty cool, pretty cool. And he's talking and I know it was a fantastic interview. Let's, let's talk about plugs, Miguel. Who are we thanking? Who in our comment section has stood out and really put themselves out there helping us battle the algorithms? Well, you know, all the usual suspects are out there. You know, Vegan Higgler, uh, Genghis Conrad, you know, uh, Crowbar. Uh, I don't know how to say Seco Sprint, Seco Print, some, one of those. Seco Inc. That's it. And uh, there are others I'm forgetting. I, the one I wanted, we got a new guy. It seems like he's a new guy and he, he's diving into everything. I think he's a guy named Scotty Y. He's going to the UFC in Tampa. And I'm trying to get him a T-shirt, trying to make it happen with another friend I'm going to mention. is Freddie Hammer, who's been with us since the very beginning. And uh, we'll see if we can make that happen. So maybe there'll be a Lights Out podcast shirt being worn in one of the UFC events coming up. And that'll be... Uh, um, that'll be a you know, new for us. Yeah. yeah. Well, Miguel, I think what we do is we have, we have contests and we encourage our people to make the news, you know, with our shirt. And we're not talking about hammers and underwear and front lawns and people like two thirty in the morning type news. Although that would be a fantastic place for product placement. Um, you know, stuff like that can only get us in trouble. You know, I mean, you, you could go with the flow with your own thing. Like, for example, if you're a Jeff Bunsen style person, politics are very, you know, front and center nowadays. Whatever your leanings are, let's say you're going to go deface a Democratic or a Republican property somewhere, wear a Lights Out podcast t-shirt. I mean, you know, why not? <laughs> but like, for instance, like I watched the, the burial of the Queen the other day, and I was hoping for just like a bumper sticker. Somebody would throw a Lights Out podcast bumper sticker on, on her casket on the way out. That could have got us a lot of views, bro. That would have, you know, our British friends are, you know, really letting us down there because that's, <laughs> you know, that's something that it should have been obvious, I think, you know. <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? You get, take one for the cause. But ladies and gentlemen, sincerely appreciate it. Uh, if you guys want to tip us out, you guys like the content, if you're still listening here, um, anything, your cash app, our cash app link is in the bio and, um, you're sending us anything through that goes directly to the show. And, uh, that, that also really helps us out a lot. So Miguel, I thought that was a fantastic interview. Good to have Chris back. I thought between the three of us, we were dead on, you know, Alex sober, you know, I, I like that. And he's, um, you know, giving back to the community. He's, he's working in with like uh, helping people rehabilitate in Oklahoma. So he's dealing with a lot of meth and, and fentanyl like issues. Kentucky. Oh, Kentucky. Fuck. But it's yeah. still, okay. still meth and fentanyl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 The location changes, but not the problem. Right. Yeah. So, so, so it's but good yeah, to see it, somebody it, giving back. You know, sometimes you got to go through the, through something powerful uh, to be able to give back properly, you know, and uh, I think Alex has got the world experience that he could help anybody out in that. So um, proud to know him. He said his his wife, his girlfriend, now wife, mentioned after the Joe Riggs fight, he wasn't as pretty because his nose was messed up. But, you know, he's still he's still got it together. He still looks pretty good, damn good for, you know, a retired fighter. So good for I Alex. think we're due for a return of Riggs, too, I might add. Yeah. I, I, I think we are. I we did his UFC career. 
Right, um, right. We really, I feel like we missed like the whole early craziness. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to reach out to him. I'll talk to Chris. We'll get that one lined up next, hopefully. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as we did. Alex Steibling is in the books. Check out the full interview on iTunes, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms.